ghosts, cryptids, murder, conspiracies, beer, what, the, ale. Hello friends and welcome to What the Ale. It's our first keg. Woo woo, we love woo! a keg. <laughs> um, so for those of you who may have missed it or just you know, cluing in with us. Um, we're going to start doing a monthly keg, which is going to be generally bigger stories or things that have a lot of material to cover. And we just want to make sure that we can fully do justice to the stories and do all the things. So, um, yeah, I think we're going to kind of cut down on the small talk and definitely get down to business. But before I do, Mama, what are you drinking today? Uh, today I'm drinking a Dark Reckoning. It's an Imperial Porter from Morgan Territory Brewing, and it, that is in Tracy, California. Yeah, not too far. How about you? So mine kind of ties into our topic for the day, but I am drinking an Extraterrestrial Thoughts. It is a Northeast IPA, and it is from Track 7 Brewing, which my also what the ill moment is that I used to work there. All right, my what the hell moment is like, I could not stop giggling tonight, and I don't know what that's about, but it was a riot. <laughs> Listen, I would love, I would rather be full of joy than full of sadness. So, that's true. You know, some giggles, giggle session, that's all we need. All right, so what you got for us today, Alana? All right, friends, remember back, way back to the beginning of the podcast, not that long ago, but... Um, you know, I was talking about Mothman and I sort of talked a little bit about these really interesting people who were threatening witnesses to the Mothman event called the Men in Black. And they really are one of the most popular like mysteries and conspiracies when it comes to the UFO and alien encounters. Um, and so I went down a huge rabbit hole and I probably found hundreds of little tiny encounters where, you know, people saw them, that might be, they did some spooky stuff. Um, and no, I am not talking about Will Smith and Tommy Lee. <laughs> Those movies are great. I love them. I like the one with Tessa Thompson. I know that one got some hate, but you know what? I don't know. It's very different, except they do kind of dress similarly. They dress similarly, but do they have all the cool weapons in the car? Because those are like the key moments in Men in Black. I was going to say these. Oh, and they're they're jetpacks. Oh, very cool. Okay, that works. Mm-hmm. I'd want the car and the jetpacks from those movies for sure. So I'll give a little bit of history, and then I think I'm just going to jump right in, and it's kind of chronological from like where the sightings kind of begin and where they go from here. Okay. Um. So generally. The men in black appear in groups of two or three, and they're generally kind of threatening witnesses of any sort of UFOs or unexplained phenomena. Um, and basically, it's just saying, keep quiet about what you've seen. Sometimes they come and are like, hey, I know you took this thing from the thing you saw the other day, so give it back, or like that type of thing. And we'll get into that later. Um, and some believe, you know, some people believe that the men in black are government agents and some think they are shape-shifting creatures or aliens. Okay. Um, there's a lot of questions about what they are because there's so many sightings, but like, what are they? Um, and so the main theories are, is A, everyone's making the whole story up, which there's lots of encounters from lots of different events all over the world. I find that hard to believe. Okay. 
Um, one is that eyewitnesses have hallucinated the encounters. Hmm. So unless everyone's taken some LSD or something, I really I'm don't know. Hallucinating it different. So it's not like a mass hallucination hysteria kind of a vibe. Right. It would be different places, different times, and different people who don't know each other. Right. Hmm. Um, some people think that ufologists have their own goals and agendas, and so they're just using the men in black as a way to prove that what their theories are are real. Um, another one kind of similar vein is that it's a practical joke. Uh, maybe people have... Maybe there was, like, some encounters of men in black like people, and then people just kind of think it's funny to mess with other people who have seen aliens. Okay. Which I could see some maybe being practical jokes. Um, <clears throat> and then a big one, very common, is that they're government agents. But every federal agency has pretty much denied that there are men in black. Um, and many have even stated that their agencies rarely if ever, go out into the field to investigate UFOs, so why would they send people to threaten people who have seen UFOs? Huh. But again, the CIA just released the file, so I don't know, y'all. Um, released the file on Men in Black? On, well, on UFOs. Oh, okay. Like, because remember, like, it was like a couple years ago, the CIA or someone, like, it, in a Freedom of Information suit, just pretty much released everything they had about UFOs. Oh, that sounds like we should do another episode on that. Oh, we can, absolutely. But I, some of those do get involved with, like, really big stories, so we might just cover little things here and there. But, okay. Um, and then, so, the main other theory is that there are aliens living on Earth, um, and... Sometimes the men in black actually do kind of hint that they're like interdimensional beings. We just don't know what they are. Um, and John Keel, who I mentioned in Mothman, the guy who was kind of tracking down these men in black, his favorite thing, like sort of theory is that they're UFO knots from other dimensions, which I mean, is kind of like they're aliens, but you know, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so let's go way back to 1927. Okay. This is kind of where the first real theory, not theory, story I could find was kind of noted. And so John Cole visited an airplane crash site and encountered a tall man in a suit. And he described the man as having high cheekbones, slanty eyes, and dark skin. And this man just kind of said, no one was hurt and no crime was committed. The man said that to John? To John, yes. The mm -hmm. suspicious man. So, like, just basically telling him to turn around and go away, like, nothing to see here kind of vibe? Yep. Okay. And so, John, I guess, when he was leaving, picked up a thingamajig. That's how he explained it. A thingamajig? A thingamajig. <laughs> I wonder what that looks like. Um, we should um, ask Ariel. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Such great descriptions, John. Um, but he picked up a thingamajig on the ground and at 3 a.m. was woken up by an army officer at his home with a similar appearance to the man in the suit hmm. who demanded he return the object to him. Okay. So that's a little sketch. You pick up a thing at an airplane site, what are you picking up that you're not supposed to see? Mm-hmm. You know? Interesting. And so, they knew who he was and where he lived. Pretty much, yeah. Huh. Like, they tracked him down. Okay. So, moving forward to June of 1947, um, Gray Barker is kind of the guy who documented this case. And um, he believed at the time it was the earliest documented MIB sighting, 
Like I said, the other one was in 1927. These are all just kind of random things that people have said. Um, so take them all with a grain of salt. <laughs> but Harold Dahl was working on a conservation mission um, with a team on Maury Island, which is near Puget Sound in Washington, um, or Seattle, close to Seattle. There you go. Um, and he found, or he saw six donut-shaped objects flying through the air. And as he watched, one object fell from the sky, scattering debris near his boat. So some of the debris hit his son Charles, and he snapped photos of the objects. And so then he, you know, kind of brought the photos and the objects to his boss, and uh, his boss, Fred Chis, I want to say Chisman, um, but Fred was skeptical, but um, he also saw these objects when he went to investigate. So he was like, okay, this was actually floating in the water. So then Harold... And just one of them fell? It, yeah, one of the, like, crafts What did the other ones do? Did they stay or did they leave? Or? I think they left. They left, okay. Yeah. And so then the next morning, Dahl um, met a men in black who was able to accurately describe his encounter. And what he said to him was, what I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience than yours, or this experience of yours, than then you will want to believe. Hmm. Which is just weird. <laughs> like, then you will want to believe. What does that mean? Hmm. But um, like, na, 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 na. Yeah. I know more than you do. Exactly, right? Like, what would be the point of even <laughs> saying that? Just to brag or like... Yeah. Oh. And so then he also warned him that bad things would happen to him if he talked about the incident. Um, and okay, so saying he knows things that are dangerous, that are threatening. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's why he knows more. And so then Dahl was more... Um, no, sorry. So then Dahl and Chisman later said the whole thing was a hoax. So they had like originally said, oh my gosh, this thing happened and it was weird. And then they like later said it was a hoax. For um, protection. Yeah, I think so. And then um, Parker kind of linked this encounter and the story with another encounter, I guess, in a similar area in one of his books that was called They They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. So Gray, I think, was kind of compiling lots of um, stories, I guess, about men in black or UFO encounters, and that's one of the stories he kind of linked. So... Hmm. It is interesting. Yeah. So then another famous one, uh, 1952, we have Albert Bender, who created the International Flying Saucer Bureau, which was a small little organization with a magazine about UFOs and aliens. Um, And in 1953, he published that he was visited by three men in suits who threatened him to stop writing about UFOs. And so the magazine Space Review did stop publishing that year. And some suspected that he was doing this because he was not making any money. And others are like, no, he was threatened by the men in black. Did he describe them the same way with like the high cheekbones and slanted eyes? And Well, I am going to explain okay. his encounter now or his opinion of them. So... He released a book in 1962 about the encounter, and he had this to say. He said, they floated about a foot off the floor. Oh, wow. <laughs> they looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Hamburg style. I'm picturing Humphrey Bogart's hat and okay. Casablanca. That's all I can think of. Um, their faces were not clearly discernible, for the hats hid and shaded them. The eyes of all three 
figures suddenly lit up like flashbulbs. They seemed to burn into my very soul as the pains above my eyes became almost unbearable. Wow. And so this is kind of the first documentation that maybe these things aren't human. Okay. So did he get a sense for what that was doing to him? Like, was it... I mean, he remembers it, so it's not like it was erasing his memory or... Yeah, maybe they were just trying to cause him pain. Like, if we can do this just by looking at you, maybe we're scaring you. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of my theory with it. But let's keep going. Okay. So... Sometime in the 1950s, some say 1950, some say other years, so I just have 1950 with a question mark. Um, A a Presbyterian minister and his son were visiting the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and they got lost in a labyrinth of corridors and found themselves in a room where there was a glass case containing small humanoid bodies. The father was then grabbed by several men and forced to sign papers before being allowed to leave. And the son told the story to Sharon Larson of the Center for UFO Studies in 1974. So this is like 25 years later. But that is kind of interesting. You know, you stumble on something. And, like, you think about the Smithsonian with the tunnels and the everything. I guess it could make sense. Yeah, but you would think if it was such a secret that they would hide it somewhere that, like, the public wouldn't have access to? Yeah, maybe they, like, took a wrong turn or, like... I know, but still, why would you put it in a museum if you didn't want yeah. people to stumble upon it? That seems sketchy. It does they seem sketchy. They should have hit it better. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. All right, so 1951. Several naval officers and a crew in a motor launch near Key West saw a cigar-shaped object hovering above the water. Hmm. A fighter plane appeared, and the object flew off, and it vanished in seconds. When the launch docked, they were surrounded by men in dark suits who held them for hours, questioning them in a way that seemed more aimed at discrediting them than anything else. And the only kind of source for this was an anonymous letter in a Miami paper. So maybe the guy, one of the guys decided to be a whistleblower, hmm. but because they're in the Navy, they could have like, lost a lot But of they people. were asked questions in a way that was like kind of like gaslighting them to get them to doubt what they saw yeah huh. like probably like you saw a cigar-shaped object sure yeah like you huh. know like are you sure it wasn't just a plane like you know hmm. that type of thing okay <clears throat> so this is the first documented case of gaslighting <laughs> <laughs> i don't know about that okay cool. <laughs> but pretty close mom <laughs> uh then in 1952 sometime in the summer um a man named Jean Pietro Mongusi. I'm sure I said that Good wrong. Try. I'm sorry to all the Italians out there. Um, he had taken some photos. Um, nowadays, they are kind of dismissed as fakes, but he took photos of a flying saucer in the Italian Alps, and he claimed he was visited by an American secret agent disguised as an Italian mountain ski policeman who interrogated him through a long night trying to get him to repudiate his story of having seen a disc-shaped object land on a glacier. Hmm. So, I don't know. Again, a lot of these are really small, and there's not much more to them than a quick little article. (laughs) Um, So then, again in 1952, also in Italy, uh, Carlo Rossi was fishing near Vico, Italy, um, and at the site he had seen an airborne disc on the 24th of July, and he was approached by a tall, thin man who asked him about flying saucers, offered him a gold-tipped cigarette, and when it made him ill, threw it into the water, and then walked off. 
So he was fearing that someone was trying to silence him. So Rossi went into the public prosecutor's office in the town of Lucha and swore out a statement of his UFO encounter. So this one's interesting because it sounds like the cigarette, like, you know, something made him not feel well. Mm. Carlo. Yeah. And the guy was like, bye. (laughs) That's a little, like, hi, I could do worse. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I guess all these little things are meant to be like threatening, though, right? They all seem it's not threatening like to it's me. erasing memory. It's not like it's killing them, you know. So just things to like, yeah. If you don't stay silent, we'll come back for you, kind of vibe. That's how it feels to me, at oh, least. Yeah, okay. it's really weird, though, right? So again, another 1952. There's a lot of 1952s. Something about this year, I swear. Um, but so Sunny Desvergers of Florida received anonymous threatening telephone calls at work saying he must not talk about his UFO encounter. And he was also followed by a black automobile. And this is one that our friend John Keel reported on. I don't know why I trust John Keel more than other UFOlogists. Okay. I just... <laughs> well, it seems like he was doing it for a very long time. Yeah, maybe he just has a lot of stories and I like them. Um, so then there was another one, um, 1952 September, and there was a... There were sightings of a 10-foot-tall monster in West Virginia um, that Kathleen May and some teenagers saw um, on September 12th. And the Snitowski family, Snitowski, Snitowski, on <laughs> September 13th. Um, and two men appeared in Braxton County posing as peddlers. They systematically visited the homes of most of the witnesses and showing little interest in selling the pots and pans they were supposed to be doing, hmm. but were talking about the sightings for hours. So, so they were posing as salesmen, but... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess if you're trying to get someone to trust you and tell, tell you some deep yeah, stuff. Yeah, you think you'd eventually be like, so do you like Teflon or like... <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I don't know. So it's interesting, but they weren't talking about the pot. So huh. that's not a very threatening one, but it is interesting. Okay. Um, another one, 1952 in October. Uh, Mr. Lyman Streeter had been receiving strange beeps on his radio, which he believed to be messages from flying saucers. And he was visited by a Mr. Clark, who claimed to be from the Civil Aeronautics Administration, and told him that in the interest of national security, he must not talk about this. All this man had was strange beeps on his radio. How did this man know? (laughs) Yeah, well, and then, like, are these administrations, are these, are they real things or like, I don't know I don't know yeah I wonder if they're like making up bureau of this and that or you know whatever right. if they're real real things or they just sound real exactly all right so another one 1953 there was a man um and Barker uh who I mentioned earlier reported this one but he said a mystery car drew up outside the home of the president of the Australian Flying Saucer Bureau who had been suffering poltergeist happenings at 3 a.m and remained there until 6.30 a.m. And just, like, stood and watched his house. Hmm. Which is just weird. Yeah. I wouldn't like that. The president <laughs> of the Flying Saucer Bureau. Who did he piss off? Mm-hmm. You know? All right. So. So, but I, so, I mean, do we think, all like, some of these people that are just interested in UFOs, are they people that had had previous encounters, or are they just interested because they've heard of things, or... So I think some of these people do run, like, the various, like, UFO agency things that people are like, oh, I, like, write 
stories about encounters or things or I mean now it's like blogs but back in the day it was like newspapers and yeah that type of thing newsletters. so I, think I wonder if they had encounters though or if they were just interested in the idea I think some of them did mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of them did end up having encounters and that's how they got into it I mean how else would you get into like UFO or Bigfoot encounters I don't know well, we're into it, and we've never been abducted. I know, but we're not joining a secret society true, yeah. and, like, writing newsletters, you know? Like, I think... We're just committing time to talking about it every week. <laughs> but, but, like, I don't know. Okay, fine. You sort know. of the same. Similar, similar, similar. <laughs> All right, back to 1953. Um, so, George Adamski wrote that he was visited by three men who direly threatened me demanding certain papers that I had for one thing some of these I gave him and was promised their return but this promise was never kept I did not give him some of my important papers but there is no denying that I was frightened before they left I was told to stop talking or they would come after me lock me up and throw the key away wow okay so that's scary all right, this one's in London in 1954. So it was Maureen Abbott, and she was waiting for a Bakerloo Line underground train in London. And she saw a large black panther run across the tracks. It's like, why is there a panther running through the tube? Like, that's a bigger problem, yeah. I think, than anything else. But two days later, she was visited at her home by a government official that advised her. And as they sat and drank tea... You know, in her apartment, he was just like, don't talk about this. Which, again... Don't talk about the panther? Don't talk about the panther. So the panther was an alien of some sort? Or something. (laughs) Something weird happened with the panther. So, again, 1954. um, Three men photographed a UFO over Null Null Arbor Plain and had their film confiscated by the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. Um, and one was later visited by a purported agent of this uh, organization who ordered silence and frightened the living shit out of me, basically. <laughs> <laughs> he's an Aussie. Of course, he's going to swear. Um, more 1954, Marion Keach, um, also maybe reported as Dorothy Martin, uh, had been communicating with aliens using automatic writing, and she was visited by two men. Um, one was an automatic ordinary human being and the other was very strange um the human one did all the talking and he said i am of this planet but he is not for half an hour he told her that she should not publicize her information as the time is not right now um do we have any idea what the messages were that she had been receiving not really i mean maybe if we were to do more research i just kind of was like i want to know about the ufo things okay (laughs) um but basically Later, she was visited by five young men that told her um, that what I said was all false and mixed up. They told me that they were in contact with outer space and all the writings I had were wrong. So, I don't know. I mean, automatic writing is kind of weird anyway. Yeah. Like, as a concept, like, the idea that you're, like, bringing just your brain as a radio and you're just, like, writing down what people tell you. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not a thing. It's just interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, Yeah. Going into 1955, uh, let's see, 20 workwomen were repairing the outside of a factory in southern New Jersey, which was engaged in classified work for the Navy, when they saw a gigantic circular object descend and hover over the car park for several minutes. 
As they were about to clock out, a man in civilian clothes herded them into a meeting room where he flourished a sheaf of papers saying, we want you all to sign this oath of secrecy promising not to tell about what you saw today. Those of you who don't want to sign needn't come into work tomorrow or ever again. So everyone signed. Um, John Keel himself did say that this is more for folklore than fact. The story uh, kind of originated through world, word of mouth um, for a long time, and no one has actually ever pinned down the original witnesses if they exist. Mm. So it is a little freaky, though, but huh. <laughs> John yeah. Keel is like it, it. You know, it's not confirmed. Well, I was going to say, if they all signed the thing, then somebody must have said something. If it did get out, I don't know. Yeah, either way, it's, yeah, it's a little interesting. All right, back to Italy. There's a lot of Italy on this, um, but... Luciano Galli of Rome was walking from his home after lunch when a, ba- a black Fiat pulled up and a man with piercing jet black eyes spoke to him and invited him to come with him. They drove to Croara Ridge outside of Rome where a saucer-shaped craft was, take- uh, was waiting and he was taken for a ride into space. That's all we have of Luciano. Okay. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if he came back. I hope. I mean, well, he obviously did. Yeah, <laughs> we know the story. Know about it. Um, but I guess that's kind of cool. Like, a guy's just like, you want to go see my spaceship? Like in Hitchhiker's Guide? Yeah. I got a spaceship. You want to go see it? <laughs> uh, I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay. Uh, back to 1955. Uh, Edward Moots was working on a soil by a peach tree in Cincinnati, and a red spray fell from the sky, and when he looked up, he saw a red and green object like a pear standing on end. And the tree was dead the next day, and it was taken away by three men who said they were from Air Force Intelligence. Two weeks later, he saw a black Chrysler Imperial park nearby, and three men train a camera on his home. When he challenged them and broke in broken English, they said they were taking pictures of the local industry and then quickly departed. Hmm. So I do think that's a little freaky. Mm-hmm. What happened to the tree? I don't know. What did they do to the tree? Why? <laughs> like, maybe some weird fuel? Like, maybe the tree would have mutated or something? Or... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But that's just freaky. They took the tree, taking yeah. pictures of his house. That's all scary. Um, yeah, I would not like somebody taking pictures of my house. Mm-mm. So then in 1957, Olden Moore um, watched a circular machine land, land near Montville, Ohio. And a few days later, the local sheriff drove to his house with men from men in Air Force uniforms. And they took him to a field where he had seen the UFO and a helicopter was waiting there. He was flown to an airport and put on a plane to Washington, where he was imprisoned for three days, and two officers tried to get him to admit that he had seen nothing but a fireball. Finally, he was flown back to Ohio, but later neither the sheriff nor the Air Force would back his story. Hmm. So he was, like, abducted for seeing a UFO. And But then they're just trying to keep saying you saw a fireball you saw a fireball and hopefully then eventually he believes that that's what he saw yeah i guess or they're they were... just waiting for him to admit it but yeah huh yeah still really weird yeah so then let's see 1958 oh gosh i don't know if i'm gonna be able to say this a man from garnishvarn hmm i hope i said that right i'm sorry everybody um who had previously um, materialized in her living room, turned up at the front door of Cynthia Appleton Ashton. Wait, what? What are my notes? Okay. Okay. Yes. A man from Garnishvarn who had previous materialized in her living room, turned up at Cynthia Appleton's home in Birmingham 
wearing a black suit um, and he departed in a large black car with tinted windows and he visited several more times throughout the following months. So he would just like suddenly appear in the living room? Yeah. At least the first time he did. I also would not like that. (laughs) I don't think anyone would like that. Not at all. I feel like I'm alone when I'm home and I want somebody (laughs) to just show up when I'm lounging in my comfy wear. Oh, exactly. All right, so moving on to 1960. So Ray Hawkins saw a wobbling gray disc while running a tractor outside of Boulder, Colorado. A few days later, he found a helicopter in the same spot with three men in Air Force uniforms who told him, we want you to tell the newspapers that the saucer will be back on August 20th. Hmm. I don't know if it came back, but that is interesting. Well, that seems like the opposite of what you would expect them to say, right? They're supposed to not want people to know. Yeah. Huh. So weird. Yeah, that seems like backwards from what they've been doing so far. Yeah. Because then it's like they're inviting witnesses. I mean, they're telling when it's coming back. Is Boulder on Route 66? I don't know. Not important. Never mind. Okay. 1961. W.D. Clendenin, who was corresponding with George Adamski. Remember Adamski? Mm-hmm. There we go. Uh, he was visited by a short man in a tan top coat who said he was engaged in a political survey to see whether people in the area had voted Republican. And he felt some sort of impulse to invite the man in. And so the man's skin was smooth as though he had never shaved. And it reminded him of a baby skin. And when he smiled, his teeth were perfect and very white. The color of his skin was brown. He says like an Indian. I don't, I'm going to assume an Indian human and not a Native American person. But anyway, um, his hair was dark and trimmed in a businesslike manner. He looked almost too perfect and it bothered me. After the man left, Clendenin got the urge to go into the backyard where he saw a brilliant white ball of light, which later became clear and looked identical in every way with the scout ship that was photographed by Adamski, which is why he reached out to him. Okay. So, I mean, maybe this guy is trying to do just research on human behavior or something, and that's why he was there, but he saw something he shouldn't have. Hmm. But I do think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, in 1961 in North Dakota... Someone named Paul Miller, I'm not sure if this is a real name or a pseudonym, but he was one of four men who saw a UFO land, um, but he did not report it. And he was called out of work and introduced to two or three strangers who had asked to be taken to his home. And they examined the clothing he had wore from the night before, especially his boots, and then left without another word. Huh. So maybe... Where had he been the night before? He saw the UFO. So there was something, like, on his boots that they thought... Maybe they thought there was, like, particles that shouldn't be there. Maybe they were making sure he didn't have radiation on him or something. Uh I don't know. Some kind of evidence, though. Yeah. Maybe on his boots. Yeah. Um, So in 1963, Li Jin Yang, uh, who was a security guard in Yangquan of the Shanxi province in China saw an object like two plates sealed together hovering in the sky. And the next day, he was approached by a strange man dressed in a black suit who warned him not to talk about the sighting. Um, Moving into 1964, Jim Templeton of Carlisle, Cumberland, was visited by Number 9 and Number 11, who investigated these things. That's how they introduced themselves? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which was regarding a photograph he had taken of an unseen man in a spacesuit taken on the 24th of May and they drove him to a site and to the site in a black jaguar which was very shiny as if brand new and then left him there to walk home 
Okay. So maybe they had a comrade who went missing and they had to find him or something. I don't know. (laughs) That's mean. You get a, I I mean, I hope it was close to his home. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how long that walk was. Um, so then in 1965, Rex Heflin of Santa Ana, California, took four Polaroids of a flying disc and was advised by a Marine Corps investigator not to talk about his signing, as did more than one telephone caller. And then he was visited purportedly by the North American Air Defense, or NORAD, who asked to borrow his prints and never return them. Hmm. However, NORAD denied any knowledge of the, no- the matter. Hmm. But that seems threatening. Yeah. Or so, not threatening, but, like, So sketchy. do we think, like, these agencies that say they're, like, actual government agencies, like, are they actual government agencies and they're in on it? Or are these, like, people that are posing as... I feel like NORAD's real. Okay. Because I feel like I've heard of NORAD before. I could okay. totally be wrong. Some of but, these I don't know. But I know I... But do we think the people actually work for these places? Or do we think they're, like, aliens saying they work for the places to get the evidence? I think some are definitely people lying. Like, okay. it, they just seem sketchy where they're like, oh, I show up in my black Lincoln and I take you somewhere and I take your things or I tell you not to say anything and then we leave. Like, that all seems really sketchy. Okay. I don't know. That's just me. <laughs> um, so, William McCoy and Robert Good, who were policemen on patrol in Brazoria County in Texas, saw a great rectangular glob of purple light. Then, low light, uh, low-flying light planes which were apparently unmarked, uh, flew back and forth over the area of the sighting for the next two days. Shortly after the incident, two strangers turned up at the sheriff's office looking for Deputy Good. They tracked him down in a local restaurant and proceeded to describe in detail what the UFO looked like, even before Good had an opportunity to tell him. Um, Then they suggested that if he should encounter a similar machine in the future, he should cooperate with its occupants and keep any conversations with them to himself. Um, the identities of these two men were never determined. So hmm. that is kind of strange. Yeah. But I do feel like, like there are people who claim they've been abducted several times. So maybe they were like trying to groom him to be yeah. abducted. And I guess maybe he never was, but maybe he was and his memory was wiped. Right. <laughs> it's all, it's all weird. Um, all right, so continue. Yeah, maybe the, maybe the men in black have the flashy things that they actually had in the movie. <laughs> there are definitely some cases where they're like, I know I've been taken because things feel different or things something's off, but huh. I don't know what it was. Yeah. There are some weird ones, um, which maybe will, like, cover some people who have actually claimed to be abducted, and that'll be really interesting. Um, but, yeah, so then in 1965, there was an officer at an industrial plant who reported a glowing object next uh, to the state police, and a few la- hours later, two military officers turned up, questioned him, and warned him to not talk about this matter to anyone. Again, who knows? You know, who knows if they were government? Who knows if they weren't? Yeah. Um, April 1966, a man claiming to represent a government agency um, so secret that he couldn't give its name appeared to a school in Norwalk, Conne- Norwalk Connecticut, and grilled two 12-year-old boys for two hours about a disc-shaped object that had pursued them at ground level. But, like, an, a government agency, you can't give its name? Yeah, that seems strange. That seems backwards. I mean, but they were little boys. Well, so I was they probably say, didn't... boys without their parents. That yeah, seems sketchy, too. exactly. Um, so, another 1966 encounter was an Ohio farmer saw a glowing circular object land in his fields, and the next morning a black limo pulled up, and a man in an Air Force uniform told him to forget what he had seen. 
He described him as shorter in stature and having features that were more like Asian in appearance, which I think makes sense with some of the descriptions of slanty eyes and things. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, okay. So, more 1966, UFO investigator Steve Yankee uh, was working a night shift at a paper mill when he was visited at 3 a.m. by two men in black who asked him about the Jessup Allende case. And after they left the room, he looked down the corridor and saw they had vanished. And there was a sense of dissipated energy about 10 feet from the door. So maybe they were beamed up. What was that case? Um, You know, I don't remember that case. I feel like I've heard of it, though. Oh, okay. Like but I, was, it was a case of, like, some kind of alien encounter? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I just can't remember what... I've read that case. I don't know where I read that case, but I feel like I have. Um, but I don't know. Um, so more 1966, there was an unnamed UFO lecturer who was called upon in his study by a man claiming to be Carlos Miguel Allende, who warned him to, conti- to discontinue his research or wind up a suicide like Dr. Jessup. So maybe we need to do that case. I'm hearing we need to do a Jessup Allende case. Okay. <laughs> because... This is quite so a few. wind up a suicide. So that means that was not actually a suicide and uh-huh. that's a threat. Okay. Yeah. At least to me. Hmm. That seems like a big threat. Yeah. Um, so then in 1966, there was another interesting report of three women in black, which was given by a correspondent who received a visitation after observing a large gray disc in the sky over his suburban residence. So, woman. Woo. Yay. <laughs> Uh, then George Smith of Elizabeth, New Jersey, went to visit two teenagers who had seen a mysterious green entity. The boys were surrounded by a crowd. He noticed two men emerging from a large black car, leaving a third behind the wheel. He had a, they had a slight slant to their eyes. And later, when Saucer News investigators went to visit one of the lads, Smith noticed that the same black car was parked nearby. And the same two men get out and watch the house while the interview was going on. Two weeks later, he received a phone call telling him to give up the UFO investigation. So, that one's clearly a little something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the boys disclosed to him, but still, that's really, again, like young boys who are being targeted. Like, that's just not fun. Like, it's not fun, I guess, in general for a government or someone sketchy to be like, I'm going to hurt you if you don't yeah. stop talking. But, like, I think especially for kids, like, that's messed up. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like in The Mothman, you said something about... People describe them as having, like, almost, like, transparent skin and, like, long hands or fingers or something. Yeah. Has anybody in these cases reported anything like that? I think there were some later on as we keep going down. Okay. We're actually getting close to, like, when Mothman happened, too. Oh, okay. Um, But I will say that with most of these cases in general, they typically have really pale skin, or the slanty eyes, or, like, weird red lips, or just in general, they look, quote-unquote, human, but there's something off. So, but, like, the slanty eyes, because I know when we think about, like, the traditional characterizations of an alien, Mm -hmm. they usually have, like, the big heads and kind of... The really big eyes. Big, like, almond-shaped eyes or something. Mm -hmm. When they're saying slanty eyes, is it that kind of vibe? Or, I mean, I guess they wouldn't be as big as, like... The characterizations that we typically think of when we think of aliens, but... Yeah, like, I I feel like they didn't really give a lot of description to that. There are okay. a few, like, 
drawings people have done after encountering Men in Black. So maybe we could post a couple of those and just say these are what people have said they look like. Okay. But I think even then, like, every description is just a little different. So yeah. So it'd be really well, hard. Well, I was going to say, because some of them didn't describe them as pale or transparent or anything. Yeah. No, I think it just depends. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the Men in Black are wild. Okay. <laughs> like, that's all I can say. Okay. Because it's just, to me, it's like, it can't just be a prank if this is happening anytime someone sees a UFO. Like, yeah. that's what's weird. Um, so yeah, back to Jersey in 1966, um, several witnesses witnessed a glowing object over the Wanake Reservoir in New Jersey, which included a policeman who had an unlisted phone number and he received, all of them received phone calls before they reported it to anyone reporting that they should keep it quiet. And later, um, several witnesses were gathered in a high school auditorium by an Air Force officer who denied the sighting and no one could remember his name and afterwards the Air Force denied all knowledge of the case. Hmm. So, again, they use Air Force a lot, which I guess kind of makes sense if you see something in the in the sky. Yeah. But, yeah, I feel like it is a lot of, like, fake Air Force people. Yeah, beings. I was going to say, either it's real Air Force and they're just not telling or it's people that are dressing up as the Air Force because they would be maybe more trusted or something, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So November 1966, a man saw a UFO near Parkersburg, West Virginia, and had not reported it, but was visited by a scientist from Ohio who told us it would be better if we forgot the whole thing. Hmm. So, and if, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess if people hadn't reported it, then like, yeah, how would these people even know to come? Or if you have an unlisted number, how are you getting phone calls? Or like all these things. Yeah. And this is like in the 60s. This what is What if you hadn't had... even reported it though? There should be nobody coming to your door. You know? Yeah, that's what's freaky. Um, so in 1966, again, uh, Woodrow Derenberger of Mineral Wells had met Mr. Cold, supposedly from the Lanulos in the Galaxy of Ganymede on November 2nd. Um, two salesmen visited Mineral Wells and went from house to house with their wares. They weren't very interested in making sales. At one house, they offered Bibles. At another, hardware. At a third, they were Mormon missionaries from Salem, Oregon. And a UFO was, a UFO wave was taking place in Salem at the time. So, but the, the, Mr. Cold met, they were like, they said they were from another galaxy? Yeah, Mr. Cold said that he was from another galaxy. And then after these salesmen are going door to door, basically. And, um, so Mr. Cold was just like, hey, what's up? <laughs> like, oh, I'm from another galaxy. <laughs> you want to see my spaceship? No. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so that's interesting. He's just wandering around describing himself that way. Right. Um, and so one of the men was reported as tall and blonde, and they said he looked Scandinavian. Um, and his partner was short and slight with pointed features and a dark olive complexion. Um, they apparently both asked questions about Woody and were particularly interested in opinions on the validity of his alleged contact. So they wanted to know if people actually believed him. Okay. Which is interesting. As I mentioned, we're getting close to Mothman. Okay. <laughs> our friend Gray Barker. I know we talked about John Keel. I did not talk about our good friend Barker here. Um, 
But Barker basically found a note on his door after, or while investigating Mothman, saying, "Abandon your research, or you will be regret. You have been warned. You will be regret. You will be regret." Huh. Okay, that's one way to say that. <laughs> but again, sometimes they don't speak good English. Like that's something they've said. Like the Men in Black sometimes will speak like broken English, or they'll like say things kind of weird, where it's like maybe it's the way like someone who's learning English but speaks another language would say something. or Like a language from another galaxy. Uh-huh. 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 Okay. <laughs> you will be regret. Lonnie, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be nice to your mama or you will be regret. <laughs> I think I'm pretty nice. I do too. Um, so then Ivan Sanderson was writing Uninvited Visitors and he noticed a car that kept driving past his home in New Jersey. He noted the license plate and was informed that no such car existed. He was then visited by two men in Air Force uniforms who asked about his book. They refused to show identification, so he ordered them out of his house at gunpoint. The local Air Air Force Base commander denied knowing about them and said that he should report them to police for impersonating Air Force officers. He was plagued by strange electronic noises over his phone for a long time afterwards. So... That is interesting. Well, and you previously um, had talked about um, the license plate thing, right? Like, people would check the license plates, and they would find that there was no license plates anywhere in America registered. Yeah, kind of John Keel and his sort of yeah. research. Anytime he encountered a car, he would run the plate, and none of them ever came up. Huh. So, okay. yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> we don't know why. Um, so, back in West Virginia... Um, black limousines halted in front of homes and deeply tanned census takers inquired about the number of children living with families. It was always about the children. And in several instances, the occupants of the black cards merely asked for a glass of water. Um, apparently a blonde woman in her thirties who was well-groomed with a soft Southern accent visited people in Ohio and West Virginia, whom John Keel had interviewed. And she introduced herself as Keel's secretary, which got people to trust her. Yeah. And the clipboard she carried held a complicated form filled with personal questions about the witness's health, income, and the type of cars they owned, general family background, and some sophisticated questions about the UFO sightings. So Let me guess. Dun, dun, dun. He didn't have a secretary. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what are? So staying in... uh, Mothman territory, West Virginia. Um, but, you know, that's interesting, though. Going back to that one, that's interesting, though, because some of the cases, it seems like they know things that they shouldn't know. Like, if somebody mm-hmm. didn't report, like, how would they know that you saw yeah. that or what you knew? Or you picked up a rock or you whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. so some of it feels like they knew stuff that they shouldn't have known. And in this case, she's asking questions that you feel like if there are these, like, superior beings, they should just know these things or have observed these things. Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, and to me, that one, I honestly read it as more of it could have been a fan or okay. maybe someone who was obsessed with it. But, okay. like, was like, so I know John That Q. was probably not That one might not galaxy. be a Men in Black. That okay. might just be a crazed fan, yeah. Okay. Um, so another kind of person investigating Mothman, Mary Heyer, um... And she was reporting for a local paper and would later run you know, UFO stories in the area, was visited in her office by a very small black-haired man with hypnotic eyes and a thin short sleeve shirt and shoes with very thick soles. Hmm. 
don't know what the clothes have to do, but okay. <laughs> like, a thin short sleeve shirt. When they say a thin, do they mean, like, she could, like, see under? Or, like, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, it sounds very fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> Mom. <laughs> no, you're right. He sounds like a catch. Yeah. Um so I think we might be done with the Mothman ones, but okay. 1967, the, Christi- the Christensen family of Wildwood, New Jersey, had seen a UFO in November 1966, and they were interviewed by the strangest looking man they've ever seen. He was wearing a thin black coat, introduced himself as Tiny from the Missing Heirs Bureau. Missing Heirs Bureau? Uh-huh. Yeah. He spoke in a high, tinny voice. He clipped... Like, he spoke in, like, clipped words and phrases like a computer, as if he were reciting from memory. Hmm. His black trousers were too short, and they can see a thick, a long, thick green wire attached to the inside of his leg. It came up out of his socks and disappeared under his trousers. Keel commented that he had not heard of this feature in other MIB cases. So he wasn't sure if, like, he was wearing electric socks, or was he, like, an android controlled by a remote control... Like, but again, this is the 60s, so this is very getting Roger, not Roger, oh my gosh, Robert Heinlein sort of, like, I don't know, have spacesuit, will travel, like, theories, you know. socks, like, does that keep his feet warm? Or like... Well, but maybe there was, like, a microphone in his socks or something, huh. or in his shoes. Maybe that's, like, what they're trying to yeah. get at. When I think of electric blankets, keep you warm. I know, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Socks, keep your feet cozy. <laughs> Um, so then Robert Stiff of the Saucer Scoop newspaper publication received the first of 13 threatening phone calls, which started as, I would suggest you drop your investigation into certain so-called UFO reports. Hmm. Just very like, I would suggest. I would just suggest it. No pressure. But then he got 12 other phone calls. So, (laughs) you know, who knows? Um, Oh, yeah, another Mothman. Another Mothman witness in 1967 was stopped by a man in a black 1949 Buick who attempted to abduct her. So lots of different kinds of cars, but they're all black. They're all black. It's always a black car. And most of them are kind of like luxury cars, too. Cadillac. (laughs) (laughs) Um, See, but I really do think they should have the car from the movie. That was much cooler than some of these cars they're describing. Oh, I agree. Oh, our good friend Woody. Woody is back. Um, In 1967, he was visited in an appliance store where he worked by two men with olive complexions and black suits who warned him to forget about all you've seen. Hmm. He thought they must have been from the mafia, which is like, if that's your... Who are you I was going to say, what does he know? He's like, I know where the bodies are buried. (laughs) Yeah, he knows something if he assumed it was the mafia. Right, like you assume it's the mafia. You don't assume it's... Yeah, that means, that means he had reason to believe the mafia was visiting. <laughs> hmm, I want to hear more about his story. Yeah. Uh, more 1967. So Carol Watts of Texas had encountered a landed saucer in March and on subsequent occasions had taken photos of it. She failed a lie detector test. Um, but he later told Robert Lofton of the University of Colorado that driving into driving to Amarillo to take the test, he stopped to help a woman driver in apparent distress. When he knocked down from behind, or he was knocked down from behind, and two men in dark business suits told him that if he passed the test, he would be shot. If he passed the test, he would be shot? Yeah, talking about the UFO. 
It's like someone knocked him out and then was threatened that if he passed his polygraph, he would be shot. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So that's just scary in general. Like, they are just like not even being vague about it anymore. They're like, you'll just be shot. <laughs> not, you may be regret. <laughs> you may be regret. It's just, you're going to be shot. I want that. Like, that sounds like some like something a drunk person would babble. <laughs> yeah. like, you may be regret. <laughs> but they're getting more bold in their threats. <laughs> oh, yeah. Listen. Um, so after this, then we have Shane Kurtz. Uh, in their last year at Westmoreland High School in New York State, uh, they were walking home and she was approached by a short man with slanted eyes and a unique accent. He knew her name and asked her peculiar questions such as, what is volleyball and basketball? He offered to take her for a car ride during her lunch hour. She ended the conversation with the words, it was nice meeting you, took three steps away, and turned around again, but the man had vanished, which she thought was impossible. A month later, she was in a nearby store, and she noticed an albino man in a long black overcoat who kept staring at her. The following year, she saw a UFO and came to believe that she had been abducted. Hmm. It's almost like she was being groomed. Like, they were, like, checking up on her. Huh. Did Which, she, was there any more details about, like, why she thought she was abducted? Not too much. Like but she remembers seeing the UFO, but she doesn't remember Like, being, I think it was one of those, like, she had dreams about it, but, like, there was no... Or she felt like something was changed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was kind of a weird, yeah. So, and we're only up to 1967. Yeah, we're still, we're having fun. <laughs> There's a lot of stories. Yeah. Okay. I took, this is a long. Well, I was going to say, I had no idea there, there was that many sightings. I mean, because this is all just in the 60s, right? So. Yeah, well, we started in the 20s. Oh, okay. But we took, we jumped a bit. And, but there were, my, so my conspiracy kind of about UFO sightings in general is like, during the Cold War and everything, when people were not communicating, I think, like, there were maybe somehow we, as a human race during World War II, like, sparked an interest in other places in us. Because I feel like there were a lot of reports during the Cold War. Huh. And then I feel like they kind of dwindled. But it's, like, I feel like that 50s, 60s, 70s, even kind of into the 80s, there's a ton of stories and a ton of abduction stories but, like, why? Like, what was happening then? <laughs> well, and then maybe after the 80s, they got the flashy thing <laughs> that Will Smith had. <laughs> maybe. And then, and then we just don't remember <laughs> these incidents, and so there are less reports. Exactly, yeah. So I really want there to be a flashy thing. I like the idea of that. Maybe we'll get there okay. as we go. I don't know. Um, so back to 1967, um, a farmer in Gallipolis, Ohio, saw a big red and white glowing thing sitting in a field near his barn which left a 30-foot circle of scorched earth. Um, a, circuit in the, a circuit box in the barn had burnt out, and the next day two men, who were supposedly from the electric company, turned up and fussed around with the transformer on the pole by the road. But they did not have an electrical truck, just a panel truck. He described them as foreigners, um, specifically Asian in appearance, and he said that they were not that friendly, um, and that they wore overalls and the thick-soled shoes. Um, and I think that's interesting because, like, they 
generally are in suits if they're men in black. So it is interesting that they are in overalls, which seem like very normal, but maybe they were trying to appear as electrical workers. Um, and then a week later, he received a telephone call that sounded like a neighbor who warned him about a crazy man with a beard. And 10 minutes later, John Keel, who was bearded, which I guess was unusual in Westford, or Ohio at the time, he turned up and uh, the guy basically ordered him off. But the neighbor told him later that he did not make the phone call. Oh, but it sounded like him. Mm-hmm. Was this like the first time there was like a crop circle kind of a vibe that we know about? I don't know if there, I mean, I feel like there were a lot of crop circles, but I think this is the only one I've encountered that the men in black were also kind of there for. Okay. But I feel like I've heard of earlier crop circles, like in the 40s and stuff. But yeah. Um, so continuing on. A woman living on Long Island near the summit of Mount Misery. Um, Mount Misery? <laughs> yes. That's the actual name? I think so. I would not want to live there. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Like, who named this place Mount Misery? I mean, stranger Couldn't things. could it be like Mount Joyful, Mount Happiness? Like, I mean, you would think maybe people climbed the mountain and were like, this is miserable, and then that's a joke they made. See, made but it. then you can name it like Mount Courageous, Mount Endurance. Like, they just went with like, we're going to just be dark. Well, maybe somebody wanted to keep it to themselves, so they named it Misery to yeah, keep it away. Yeah, they wanted their summer home on it, and they yeah. wanted to be by themselves. Yeah. Okay, maybe, but yeah, that's a horrible name. <laughs> um... But apparently there were many UFO sightings there, and she was visited by four men with high cheekbones and very red faces who said, my land belonged to their tribe, but they had no car, so they must have had walked up the muddy hill, but their, their shoes were spotlessly clean. Hmm. The same week, a woman with striking white hair came to represent a local newspaper and asked her a number of questions about her family background, and the newspaper denied employing anyone of that description. So, my thought is maybe they were posing as Native people to get information. Because, yeah, like, the having completely clean shoes unless they, like, walked up the hill. I mean, it's just interesting. I don't know what it means, but, yeah, the newspaper not having a reporter of that description who was in her house and asking super personal questions, that's a little concerning, too. Maybe we should not let people into our house who are asking, maybe we shouldn't let anybody in our house, but, like, that are asking super personal questions. I just don't think, I feel like I don't answer the door unless I know someone's coming. Yeah, so I don't either. I'm like, like, if I'm not expecting I don't you, even answer my phone unless I recognize me. the number. Yeah, you like, better text me if you're at the door, because I'm not going to let you in unless I know you're coming. Exactly. Um... So then remember Mary Heyer, who I mentioned earlier. She, again, saw the little man who had visited her in January on the streets of Point Pleasant. But when he saw her, he ran off and leaped into a black car driven by a very large man. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so he did not want a confrontation. And this was also around Mothman. Mothman time. Okay. So it is interesting. Um, And this was in Point Pleasant. So, yeah, um... Next, Mrs. Ralph Butler of Awatana, Minnesota, uh, had apparently seen UFOs and heard strange voices on her CB radio, and she was visited by Mayor Richard French with a pointed face and long hair, and he said he was interested in CB and UFOs. She offered him some jello or jelly, and he tried to drink it out of the bowl, (laughs) which... 
you know, again, as I say, they always say they look human or they appear human, but there, something's a little off. Yeah. That's a little, you're trying to drink Jello. <laughs> like... I was going to say, what a thing to offer some, I mean, I guess, again, different time. It's the 60s. Gotta you had Tupperware parties. L-L-O. <laughs> yeah. Um... Oh, going back to Mount Misery, Mom. Oh, okay. So there was an encounter, a UFO encounter, and someone who went by Jane received a phone call telling her to go to the local library and get a book on Native history and to turn to page 42. And she did, finding the place deserted except for a female librarian. The words of page 42 turned into a message from them. Later, she started to see the librarian whenever wherever she went. It proved that... It proved that her name was Leah and that she, or it said that her name was Leah and she came from another planet after she sucked out the contents of an egg from Jane's refrigerator. It was expected that she was really a reptile. This woman also inter- introduced her to a Paul who drove a black Cadillac. So she encountered a UFO. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm stuck on the, I'm sorry. Hold on, we got it. I'm sorry. I'm stuck on the. She, she sucked the contents of an egg <laughs> out of the shell. Yes. And that meant she's a reptile. I guess, because reptiles do that. Don't they? They eat eggs. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how a reptile eats eggs, but she sucked the contents of the egg out of the shell. Yes. And that meant she's a reptile. Okay, I have to do some research on reptiles. I'm not sure how that works, but that's an interesting that's what connection they said. to make. That's what they okay. said. I'm sorry, I got a little stuck on that. Well, but I'm trying know, to picture. But like, okay, in Alice in Wonderland, they freak out because she's like, "You're a snake, and you're gonna eat my eggs." Like, I think it's a thing. I know, but don't snakes just eat the egg? They don't. Do they suck the contents? Well, I don't. I don't think snakes have that capability. I don't know. I was gonna say snakes just unhinge and swallow things whole, like. <laughs> Not sucking the contents out of an egg. I'm just trying to, like, what would I do if I had somebody in my house that was sucking the contents out of an egg? You don't want to find out, though, do you? No, but I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to picture. That's very odd. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, back to Ohio. I feel like there's a lot of Ohio in this. Um, but a young family man from Belpre, Ohio, had some interesting UFO sightings. And afterwards, he had a brief encounter with two black-garbed, quote-unquote, oriental-looking men. Which we do not use that anymore. We know we don't use that, but I don't want to assume anything. Um, And they appeared to be confused and drunk, and they had difficulty walking. So I don't know if that that doesn't seem like a typical uh, men in black encounter. I was going to say, I wonder if they... Sucked out the wrong egg. (laughs) (laughs) They got some fermented egg. I don't know. (laughs) Somebody gave them some spiked coffee. (laughs) See, my thought is like, yeah, maybe they had like, they were like, ah, humans drink beer, but it never had beer before. And then they got wasted (laughs) off of one That would be a really good comedy. (laughs) I should write a script on it about egg sucking drunk men in black. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I feel like the rights to Men in Black are probably like I know we'll call them Men in Dark Grey. <laughs> no, we can call them Men in Black, but like if we were, it would be like a funny like comedy to just have these like two guys trying to like assimilate. I think it'd be yeah. really funny. No, we could totally write a script. Let's do it. That's our next project. <laughs> Great. Coming to you on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. 
Anyway, so in 1967, Anonymous reported that on a number of occasions, they saw the Phantom Cadillacs, as advertised, complete with sinister-looking passengers in black suits. On Long Island, following the directions given to me in an anonymous phone call, I pursued one of these cars down a dead-end road where it seemingly vanished into thin air. There were no side roads or turnoffs. Okay. Again. That sounds more UFO-y. It does. Alien-y than some of the <laughs> other things. Uh-huh. Like I said, some of these are hits. Some of them are misses. We're just doing our best here. Yeah. Uh, so then we have Jane P. Paro, who is a radio broadcaster in Babylon, Long Island, who had reported local UFO sightings and interviewed Princess Moon Owl, who said she was from an asteroid named Ceres and was abducted by a black Cadillac, which had flashing lights on the dashboard. Um, I couldn't take my eyes off them. It felt like they were hypnotizing me. They stopped at an isolated crossroads where the three men asked her questions, which didn't make any sense to her. Finally, they returned her to the spot where they picked her up. Hmm. So... My question is, is, like, did they abduct her and she, like, was hypnotized into thinking she was Princess Moon Owl? I don't know. (laughs) Or, like, I'm not quite sure where the Princess Moon Owl comes in. Interviewed Princess Moon Owl. Huh. Yeah. Right. Maybe that's how she refers to herself. She's like, hey, I could be a Princess Moon Owl if I want to From the Asteroid series? Who lives on an asteroid? I don't know. You'd have to, like, warm temperatures or, like, I don't know. I don't know, man. (laughs) Weird. Um, Anyway, continuing. There was an encounter with a brilliant blue-white light source on a road between Mommy and White House, and Robert Robert Richardson of Toledo, Ohio, found a piece of metal which he believed to have come from the UFO. The next day, he was visited by two men who did not give their names and asked questions about the incident. They departed in a 1953 Cadillac with the license number 8577D, but when he checked with the police, they told him this number had not yet been issued. So, classic. Classic men in black there. (laughs) Um, uh, July 1967, UFO investigator Robert Easley of Defiance, Ohio, was followed by a man in a black sedan with no license plates as he drove to the scene of a sighting. On the 15th, the car drove past as he talked with talked about UFOs with his girlfriend on the front porch. When they got off the subject, the car left, but when they got back on it about an hour later, the same car was back again, as if the driver could read their minds. On the 17th, checking another report, the same man followed him. He also received 12 phone calls of a beeping sound for about 15 seconds, followed by silence. Okay. So that seems like a bit of a tactic there yeah um well, and again the name of the town defiance <laughs> like it, they were just like we do not comply <laughs> i really want to know who names these towns that's kind of an interesting choice too it's not as bad as misery because <laughs> you know sometimes it's good to be defiant i don't know yeah no but, defiance isn't bad but yeah, yeah. that's funny back to robert richardson he was driving around a bend at night and found a strange object blocking the road Unable to halt in time, he hit it, and it vanished. Three days later, two men visited his home at 11 p.m. and questioned him for about 10 minutes. They left in another 1953 black Cadillac, whose license plate number was found not to have been issued. And a week later, he was visited by two different men who drove a current model. So, Was there damage to his car? 
There was. Okay, so he clearly had hit something and it's not like you imagined it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I feel like when I wrote this one down, there were like little, there was like weird paint or like metal or something. Like there was something weird with the way that it had Hmm. hit. Yeah. But then the object was just gone. Yeah. Weird. Hmm. Okay. All right. 1967 in Kansas City. Or Kansas I don't understand that sentence, but um, a man in a black suit and a pointed chin with thyroid eyes and long tapering fingers went into Max's Kansas City, New York. Max's Kansas City. And maybe York. that's the name of the restaurant. Maybe. He was ordering food. And he ordered food. Oh, but he, he ordered food. Like he said, I want food. Okay. And unable to read the menu and not knowing how to use a knife and fork. He told a waitress he was from another world. Okay. So Max's Kansas City was a restaurant in New York. That's what I'm assuming. Okay. Maybe it's like a Kansas City kitchen or something. Yeah. Maybe I didn't add kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 1967. We're in September. We're almost done with this year, friends. Um, one of several students at Highlands University, Colorado, who had seen a UFO the night before, received a phone call threatening his life if he talked. He told this to a fellow student who a week later, in company with a campus police officer, saw a blood-red object. Two days later, he too received a phone call late at night telling him to forget what he'd seen. The next day, a man on the street told him about the sighting and even added information that confirmed some of my own research on Atlantis and told him to keep his mouth shut. A few days later, a black car with tinted windows and a license plate showing nothing but three X's nearly ran him over. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So that time they were like, <laughs> they were like, we're going for it. Like, forget the warning. We're just going to. I mean, they had warned him, I guess. Well, yeah. But, yeah. No. But no second chances. We're just going to try to run you down. But then they left him alone after that. Yeah. So then they were like, okay, now he's scared and he'll stop. I guess. I think they were trying to go for scare tactics here. Wow. Yeah. So now Mrs. B of the San Luis Valley in Colorado had made a painting of a crescent UFO that she had seen, was visited by a man who told her, I cannot read, but mention any book in any library and I will be able to tell you its contents. He went on to say that humans waste too much time and energy on food when it all could be so easily taken from the atmosphere. He insisted on buying her painting, so she said a high price, to which he replied he had no money. He departed in a car which had an... Arizona registration, but months later, the police could not trace the plates. So you can get all your food contents out of the atmosphere? I guess. But it probably doesn't taste as good, Alana. No. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I took organic chemistry, and 90% of the frickin' atoms and things you deal with in an OCHEM are carbon. Hmm. Like, pretty much everything is carbon. Okay. So, I guess that makes sense. Like, but again, it won't taste good. You want to take in the yummy food. Oh, yeah. No, I want good food. <laughs> oh, we're back to our friend Rex Heflin, uh, who was visited this time by two men in Air Force uniforms. And they arrived in a dark car with a peculiar violet glow coming from behind its windows. They asked him what he knew about the Bermuda Triangle. And whilst they were there, his FM radio emitted f- several audible pops. Hmm. Now, I think the violet glow coming from inside the car, excuse me if I'm wrong, are like LED disco lights. I think so, too. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely been in a disco Uber that's had some fabulous lights and great music. And, yeah, I think that's totally a thing. I don't know if they had that in 67, but. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta yeah. love a disco Uber. Oh, absolutely. All right. So, back to George Smith. He's back. 
Uh, he was threatened by a man from a black car with red upholstery, which drove off silently. Uh, around the same time, a UFO witness, Mrs. Caparino of Jersey City, saw a black car with red upholstery park outside her house on three consecutive Fridays. Each time, two men got out and rang her bell, but she was too frightened to answer the door. Huh. I would be too. That would be too. <laughs> like we said, we don't answer the door. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> um, so next, there was Peggy G, who had two UFO sightings that year. And later, a poltergeist in her home. A poltergeist? No, poltergeists are scary. That's, like, the one thing I don't think I could deal with, a poltergeist. What did that look like for her? Did she say? She didn't say, but we should look into it. Peggy. Hmm. Peggy, you out there? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she worked in a department store in the afternoon, and a guard employee there asked her to lunch and informed her that he was a member of a secret organization working on Earth called the Cosmic Brotherhood. When a coworker mumbled that he was crazy, the guard looked up and told him to get away with rays of light shooting from his eyes. Wow. Soon after, he left the job and could not be traced. Later, she had interference on her telephone and saw two men stringing silver tape over the wires near her home. The police, when called, commented, oh, the silver tape again. Oh, so they had other reports of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. I wonder, like, if you were her, like, and the, what, how is it described, laser eyes or something? Like, what would you do if somebody just invited you to lunch? <laughs> you were like, you know what, I'm sorry, I forgot. <laughs> like, I have a boyfriend. <laughs> Be like, oh, you know, you know. No, I, oh, I forgot, I gotta wash I, my hair. I told my mom I'd get, I'd pick up some, some oranges. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, you would make an excuse real quick to get out of that lunch. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Um, so then a newswoman of Point Pleasant named Mary Heyer, who I believe we talked about earlier, was visited by two men in black overcoats who asked her, what would you do if someone did order you to stop writing about flying saucers? Later that day, Jack Brown, who looked like the other two, came and asked her, what would, what would you do if someone ordered, ordered you to stop, to stop printing UFO stories? Huh. So almost talking in that clipped computer. So what would what would you do if if someone ordered ordered you to stop to stop printing UFO stories? Huh. Yeah, that's a weird way to say that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Which again goes in like if they were like talking like computers or yeah. whatever, you know. It is kind of weird. Um so then following the sighting of a long dark body with a dim red and yellow lights at both ends, um, sort of UFO of some sort, a woman who lived on Keats Island in British Columbia was visited by two men in dark overalls who claimed to be employees of the hydroelectric company. Um, they put in a stovepipe for her. One went on the roof, and the man on the ground directed him, and the other would answer, yes, master. Hmm. So that's fun. Wow. Don't like that language either, Mm-mm. but... Yeah. So, back in 1968, UFO investigators were patrolling the Mohawk River, where a UFO had been sighted, and saw a red oval for themselves. Several days later, one Peter Stevens was approached in a cafe by a strange man who talked about UFOs, then said, people who look for UFOs should be very, very careful. Huh. This was then followed by the unusual pattern of phone calls and poltergeist activity in his household. Poltergeist activity. But that reminds me of that Twilight Zone where the aliens are just messing with the lights and doing all the crazy shit. Yeah. And then the people are like, you're doing it, you're doing it, and then they all kill each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do wonder, like, poltergeist, like, 
Because, yeah, I mean, I guess if you could mess with electricity or things like that, I mean, it would scare people. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even if you were not from a galaxy far, far away and you just were doing something like that and you were, like, government agency, I think that would scare people to feel like you had power. You Absolutely. Because they would think it was poltergeist and not just the power company or something. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that that would definitely scare me, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So, 1968, a friend of Brad Steiger, who apparently was doing some UFO investigating for him, was given a piece of metal by a farmer who had seen it fall from a UFO. He returned to his hotel, only to find two men waiting in his room for him. Oh, good lord. See, I cannot. (laughs) I walk in my hotel room, two men are there, I'm running. (laughs) They demanded the metal with... I, I with menaces. Wow, good good writing there. With menacing, I'm guessing they looked menacing. Okay. Um, and this apparently was the same in- incident as recounted by Warren Smith, who said it also had occurred several years ago for him. Hmm. And added that several people in the district where there had been a UFO flap had been visited by purported fertilizer salesmen who wanted to talk about the UFO si- sightings rather than selling fertilizer. The men were called Jim and Tom. Jim kept smoking cigarettes, and they refused to say from which government agency they came from. They tried to pay his hotel bill, or when he tried to pay his hotel bill, they said they had no record of his staying there. Huh. So even just erasing weird evidence like that, like... Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it either. <laughs> um, so then Tom Monteleone from Aldelfi... Maryland was visited in a restaurant where he was working um, to pay for college by Vadig, whom he had met on December 10th, 1969, when he came out of an egg-shaped object on a road near Washington. The next day after he returned home, Vadig came up to him in a very old Buick, but it looked brand new. He was driven to a remote spot in Maryland where an egg-shaped object was waiting. He was flown to the planet Lanulos, where the people were all naked, and he was given a tour around. They then flew back to Earth, and the black Buick returned him to his home. From the clock, he found that this had only taken two hours, though it seemed like much longer. Years later, Monteleone claimed the story was invented. I don't know if that's just a men in black or, like, some wild story. Hmm. A planet of naked people. I dig it. (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say, sounds like a party. (laughs) Um... Then, at 1 a.m. in February of 1968, a man in Phoenix, Arizona, was awoken up by a knock at his door. He saw a man standing in his room at some distance, wearing dark clothing. I couldn't see his face. He was slender and not tall, perhaps 5'9". He changed position a few times, and then he was gone. So there was a knock at his door, but then the person was actually standing in his room? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. That could also just be a ghost. Yeah. But... I hate it. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> like, I don't want to see anybody standing in my room that I did not invite in my room. <laughs> yeah, and he couldn't see his face, which is why maybe it's more ghosty. Yeah. But it could be a Men in Black-ish. I don't... You never know. Let's see. Then Bill and his wife encountered a red glowing UFO. That night, they were visited in the hotel in Knoxville, where Bill worked, walked by a man dressed in black with jet black hair. When they told him Martin Luther King had been shot in Memphis, he said... Good, I hope he dies. And he remarked, every man has his price, and tested them by asking for how much money they would run naked across the highway. <laughs> wait, wait, what? 
<laughs> so it was like the supposed men in black that was like didn't care about Martin Luther King or was asking about Martin Luther King. Like he didn't care and said every man has his price. Huh. Again, not very men in blackish, but just kind of weird. I was gonna say sounds just kind of like a racist asshole, but. But they did. They did see a UFO that night, mm-hmm. so maybe they were like, "Yeah, I don't know." Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that one's connected, but mm. I hope that guy had some karma. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Just warning for this one: bad language. Um, but anyway, so this man described a quote unquote Indian. We know it's probably Native American. Um, And black clothes appeared in the middle of the night on a college campus in Minnesota following a series of UFO sightings. He behaved in a drunken fashion. Again. Another drunk man in black. I know. They're partiers. (laughs) Listen, I'm telling you, if you can only have one beer. Maybe they've been getting some of these strong beers that we're getting. (laughs) I know, seriously. Some of these, I'm like shocked by the alcohol content. I'm like, how is this legal? Anyway. um, Then... Um, another woman from Keats Island in British Columbia encountered two men in dark overalls, the elder being the same, but the younger different. I think like maybe they looked the same, but like the younger one, like looked a little different or something. Hmm. Um, and the following day, a group of hydroelectric employees assured me that yesterday's men weren't hydro men and that somebody had been pulling my leg. Which is scary if, like, yeah. some workmen, like, came up to your house. Uh-huh. I don't like that. So that's why I don't answer the door. Are you going to do some work on my meter? You leave me a note and let me know and I can verify that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, I guess, in 1968, George Smith saw doppelgangers of John Keel, Gray Barker, and James Mosley across the street from his house. A week later, three men stepped out of a black Plymouth 1960 vintage and West Virginia license plates who claimed to be from the saucer news and asked them to repeat what happened to them. The magazine denied all knowledge. So these guys looking like these famous ufologists came to his house, but they denied that they even did that. So that's a little freaky. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Then let's see. Bill um, had interviewed a a contactee along with Brad Steiger um, had received a phone call detailing their movements, including where they had stayed and what they had ate. They tried to keep their movement secret precisely because they heard about the harassment of other UFO researchers. And then a poltergeist entered his home twice, and a smallish man cloaked in shimmering light materialized in his bedroom. Cloaked in shimmering light. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but that's a little weird. Maybe like a like a beam? Like a beam-me-up Scotty situation? Hmm. I mean, but that sounds a little less intimidating than the, like, faceless, dark shadow kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one sounds, again, more like a party, like a disco, like, spotlight. <laughs> totally. Um, so then later on, Mary, who is the wife of investigator John Robinson, noticed a large black car with red upholstery parked near her door four mornings in a row, while a man in a dark suit looked piercingly at her. The next day, she saw a doppelganger of Jim Mosley directing traffic as she returned from shopping. On the 18th, Timothy Beckley and the real John Mosley came for a visit, and they noticed the black Cadillac parked in front of the closed factory door. And they took two photographs of a man standing in the factory door, 
and Mary identified as the man who had stared at her. I've actually seen this picture. It kind of just looks like a guy, but it is interesting. So but there's more stories now of a black car with a red upholstery. I was noticing that too, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it sounds kind of fashionable. I was going to say, I kind of love it. But. <laughs> not that, not their behavior. We love the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay. So, Jonestown, New York. Jamestown, New York. Oh, my goodness. Thomas Wiedemeyer was visited by Mayor Smedley of Major Smedley. Yes, of the Air Force. And the interrogation left him with a headache. However, there was no Major Smedley in the Air Force. But this man was found to have visited other UFO researchers. Okay. So, that's freaky. Um, Then, later on, deputy police officer met three mysterious men in black suits. They had an odd manner of speaking, and as though they would inhale and then speak until they had expelled all their breath, and then exhale to begin to speak again. So, just kind of weird behavior. Yeah. Um, then Captain Monroe, who was claiming to be from the UFO Research Institute in Pittsburgh, visited a young man who had photographed a UFO with a Polaroid camera, and they told him the pictures were faked. And they said that he should keep his mouth set, mouth shut or something unpleasant. What happened to him? Okay. Don't like that. <laughs> uh, we're still in the 60s. We're still in the 60s. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I'm telling you. But continuing on in 1968... Uh, young investor investigator Dan O was talking on the phone to another ufologist when their call was interrupted by a Mrs. Slago who told Dan that he should not inquire if aliens exist on Earth as Earth people do not understand and then broke off. Asked to repeat her name, she said Mrs. Nelson. So she gave two different names. Okay. But it was like as if like a, a telephone operator interrupted the call? Yeah. Huh. Which is just kind of weird. Yeah. Like, Earth people don't understand. Mm-hmm. That would freak me out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's see. Martin Johnson, who is an off-duty policeman, and his wife saw mysterious lights over Sheffield. After reporting this to the Sheffield Morning Telegraph, he was called to a superintendent's office where he was interviewed by two men dressed like spies on TV and trench coats and trivi hats. They tried to persuade him that he had only seen an aircraft or a helicopter, then that he was under oath and sworn to secrecy for 25 years. Well, second that 25-year mark hits, I'd be like, hello. Yeah. (laughs) I had a thing. I have something to say. (laughs) Um, So then, summer 1968, an unnamed journalist in an unstated location reported that several people said men claiming to be Brad Steiger and John Keel warned them not to talk about UFOs, which is backwards, Mm -hmm. (laughs) knowing those two. And when he tried to talk to a farmer's wife, three suntanned men in dark suits wearing glasses and a copy of a magazine with a UFO article said that Brad Steiger was warning all UFO sighters not to talk. And by the way, Keel published this story, which means Keel was like, this ain't real. (laughs) But this, you know, because I know you had um, said there were like different ideas about you know who they are, but like shapeshifter was one of them, and so if they're mm-hmm. now showing up as these other people, then that would support and a like shapeshifter. identifiable people. Yeah, yeah. People that other people would recognize. Yeah, so then it would be like a shapeshifter vibe. Yeah, no, it's super weird, y'all. Um, so then later on in 1968, and another friend of 
Brad Steiger was approached in London by three men in black asking him about train times, but back in his hotel, he saw the same men on a street corner looking up at his room. A day or so later, one of them confronted him, saying, you are a friend of Brad Steiger. Tell him we shall visit by Christmas. Steiger related this to another friend who said that, if so, send him down to talk to me. No sooner had Steiger left him than he was visited by the cadaver, the thinnest man he had ever seen. He took down the car registration and learned that there was no such car in Iowa. Well, if he's visiting me by Christmas, then I would hope he would bring me a nice <laughs> gift. I mean, at least I'll some mold wine. wine. You know? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, some kind of <laughs> plant for the house. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. Come for Christmas. Don't threaten me, but yeah. bring me a gift. Yeah, yeah. definitely if you're going to be in time for Christmas, then bring something <laughs> nice for the house. Yeah. Um... So, finishing out 1968, we have Brian Leithley Andrews, who was a UFO investigator in Coventry, who returned home to notice a man standing next door by the garage, and his face was glowing orange as I watched, and the face changed into that of an old man before my eyes. Hmm. After this, he started experiencing problems with his telephone and started getting threatening phone calls. He then abandoned the UFO investigation. Hmm. Yeah. So going back to the shapeshifters. Yeah, but it's interesting that it went from like something scary to then like an old man. So it was like supposed to not be scary. Yeah. Because I don't think, I think they want to try to get you to trust them probably. Yeah. But they also want to like shut you up. So it would make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So then in 1969, a drunken men in black into a newspaper office in new york state while a reporter was typing up a local ufo report he was dressed in a back a black suit and after much wheezing he managed to say don't print that story he staggered out bumping into furniture the reporter followed after him immediately but the street was deserted Hmm. so if someone's drunk and like staggering they wouldn't just disappear if you follow them out a door Mm -hmm. so i wonder if the drunk is like (laughs) You know, when they get into these different bodies or shapeshift or whatever they're doing, mm-hmm. then maybe that, you know, there's a little bit of a... <laughs> yeah, I almost wonder, like... There's what, a little bit of a disorientation that comes with that. What if it's, like, our atmosphere? Like, what if, like, our air makes them high or something? Too? What if he, it's because somebody was wheezing? Yeah, he was yeah. wheezing. So, yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, he's out of breath. Yeah, something weird. But, something yeah, weird. disappearing, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1969, an unnamed UFO investigator was confronted by three men in black, which on the window of the car they were riding in was the symbol that connected them with their visitations. There was really no explanation as to what the symbol was, unfortunately, but subsequently he also received mysterious phone calls, his house was searched, and black Cadillacs continued to follow him around. So all the cars were marked with whatever the symbol was, so he knew that they were related, but he didn't know kind of what it was. Well, and at this point, they're consistently using black Cadillacs, so their taste has improved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so then, uh, the last 1960 story, finally done. Uh, a motorist in Massachusetts came across a UFO blocking the road. A man with popping eyes and a red face who had difficulty breathing approached and asked for a lift to town. He wore a black coat and very shiny green trousers made out of some material I had never seen before. He got in the car and the UFO took off and vanished. I asked where he came from and the man said, you won't understand. Um, 
The motorist deposited him on Main Street and thought of going to the police, but the man said, nobody is going to believe you, so don't bother. And then he staggered away. So then two men with the Ministry of Defense visited James Wilson of the Eastern Midlands and told him that he might as well forget all about the light he had seen in the sky in late August because they had identified it as the Russian satellite Cosmos 408. It was later proved it was not. Okay. Two men and a black Jaguar took to parking by his house in the evening. Police discovered that its number plate was false. On October 21st, officers approached the car to question the men, but suddenly it melted away into nothingness. And this was in 1971. All right, we're in the 70s. 70s. I'm telling you, I swear, something about the Cold War, y'all. So 1972, Peter Taylor of Manchester, um, I guess he lived near the airport, was besieged by reporters over his sighting of a glowing object in the Pennines on the night of the 16th and 17th of August. But... Two Ministry of Defense men arrived in a large black car, got rid of the reporters, and asked him repeatedly about the opening of a T-shaped door in the object, and advised him not to talk. Okay. Again, 1972, Billy Doyle was taking an evening walk away from his job at a hotel near Eastbourne, and saw a collection of glowing colored lights. Two weeks later, a CID man, not sure what that means, interviewed him about it and said, what would you say if I asked you not to report this? What was his answer? Didn't answer. He was like, I say nothing. <laughs> Apparently he, he took the fifth on sharing that part of the story. <laughs> I don't really know. Um, in 1973, Jerry Armstrong had numerous UFO sightings and served, a record, served in a record shop in Newmarket Plaza, Jackson's Point, Canada, by the most beautiful girl he had ever seen, and a flowing black dress with long black hair and the blackest eyes I had ever seen. She flung his change on the floor, and after he had picked it up, she had vanished. Huh. So that's kind of interesting. Um, like, he buys a record, and she throws the change on the floor and is gone. But she was probably behind a counter. Yeah, but, like, what did she want? Like, she didn't give him a warning or didn't... Well, because he had, he had had numerous UFO sightings, so maybe it was some sort of just like, I'm watching you. Okay. You know? But then they also made her beautiful, so <laughs> I don't know what that was supposed to mean for him. Confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably wants that one to come back. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Uh, then in October of 1973, Stephen Pulaski, who was 22, and two 10-year-old boys saw a red-glowing UFO outside of Uniontown, Pennsylvania. They heard a screaming sound and noticed a sulfurous smell and saw two Sasquatch-like ape men between seven and eight feet tall. He fired his rifle and apparently hit one three times. The ape men retreated into the woods and the UFO vanished. Later that day, when questioned by UFO researchers, he went into a trance in which he saw a man in a black hat and a cloak carrying a sickle. He said, "If if man doesn't straighten up, the end will come soon. There's a man here now who can save the world. Huh. So some sort of prophet, I guess? Well, I wonder who the man is, but there's or also... Or man. <laughs> I, but, like, also, like, don't you usually, when you think of sulfur, isn't that usually demons? And then yeah. there's, like, Bigfoot? Sasquatch kind of... Yeah. This all seems just, like, a lot of things mixed together. It that, sounds like the Bridgewater Triangle, which I, we'll get into. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Later. <laughs> um, 
for those of you who don't know, the Bridgewater Triangle is just a really weird place in Massachusetts where there's like lots of weird encounters and murders and Sasquatch and cryptids and just it's all weird. So okay, very interesting place. We but will yeah, cover that someday. Sounds like a mix of a lot of different things. So mm-hmm. yeah, it doesn't sound strictly alien or men in black. And it was in Pennsylvania, so it was not in Massachusetts. I was about to say it could have been no, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just very weird. Um, so then in November of 1973, I guess there was a new, uh, a UFO wave in New Hampshire and Florence Dow heard a thumping sound on her porch. Looking out, she saw a man in a black coat and a wide brimmed black hat and what appeared to be a face covered with masking tape. Hmm. Like he just got some plastic surgery. Sounds like kids that are playing with tape to try to make their face look weird, or right? You know, when you tape your nose up to look like a pig or something, like, huh? That's an interesting look. I know, right? (laughs) Um, I mean, maybe the shape shifting takes time, you know. (laughs) I think that one needs to go back for some more practice. (laughs) I don't know, man. Um, then in 1973, Mrs. Verona of Devon had been abducted and um, assaulted by an alien on October 16th, and she received phone calls, letters, and then visits from two men who described exactly what happened and warned her not to talk. They continued to visit for four years until she did not, or until she went to investigators, basically. But they described to her exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. So she was abducted and assaulted by an alien. So they described it to her just to be like, we know what it was. We know, like, details of what happened to you. Okay. But they don't want her to tell. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Which, I mean, horrible. Yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you, my friend. Yeah. Um, But weird that they would want to, like, go over the details with her mm -hmm. if they didn't want her to not talk. Because before they did a lot of gaslighting and, like, this wasn't what it was and so it's weird that they went over in detail with her what it happened yeah but maybe they were like trying to threaten and mm-hmm. they were like we know what happened and no one will believe you mm-hmm. you know like well, something like that that would be true here for sure yeah <laughs> don't get started on that yeah um But then in 1974, there was an intruder who broke into a radio station in Paris, France, um, which had been broadcasting a series of interviews with UFO witness and theories and um, abstracted all the untransmitted tapes, though leaving behind those which had already made it over the airwaves. The thief, whoever it was, can hardly have had any other motive than to prevent the tapes from being heard by the public. So... Maybe not a typical you uh, men in black encounter, but definitely weird. Yeah. Like maybe this was a person who was a witness and was like, I don't want my story to be told and like grabbed them or mm-hmm. maybe, you know, I think there could be a link there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so April 1974, Frank and Kathy were driving in East Hannock County, Ohio, when they saw a very fiery pulsating light and they told other people about it on their CV radio. At 2.45 a.m., they went to the Wigwam Bar and Restaurant don't like that where a man rushed up and asked what did you see in the sky and this man was bald with fingers twice as long as normal Hmm. he denied having a cb and when asked how he knew about it said i live by visions okay (laughs) you said that in a very happy tone (laughs) that's kind of how he wrote it you're like girl i live by visions (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very like I don't know 
Very sassy, Alana. Very sassy. I want him to be sassy. Okay. Not scary. But this, so this is the first description that we're having, though, that has the sound of what you described before. There was another one with the big fingers. Oh, so. Okay. But yeah. yeah, big hands, big fingers. Yeah. Like I said, it and bald too. Mm. These guy, this guy was bald, and I think that was in the last one. So. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Um. So then in 1975, ufologist Anton Ponce de Leon, love his name, visited Sikiwani? Sikiwani, I'm going to go with that, where there were many UFO sightings. And he met a reporter from the newspaper Ultima Hora from Lima, Peru. Um, The reporter had photographed three UFOs in Capillani, Argentina. He sent them for developing. But on returning to his hotel, found that two gentlemen in black with hats had thrashed his room. And further harassment made him extremely frightened. So he never published the photos. Okay. So again, going in your hotel. That's like my nightmare. Like going into a place that I know people shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Like my apartment or a hotel or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's my nightmare right there. I'll tell you that. Yep. <laughs> Um, so then 1975, continuing on, two mysterious men in a black Cadillac attempted to confiscate from the Ohio State Director for MUFON, Niels Paquette, some metal samples that were allegedly from a UFO. He said that a check of the license plate number of their car revealed that number had never been issued. So again, classic license plate thing. Um... May 1975, Carlos de los Santos Montiel, whose light plane had been buzzed by three discs on an approach to Mexico City, was driving to a TV station to tell a story when two black limousines hemmed his car in. Four men got out and warned him not to talk. He went home again. In June, he agreed to talk to Alan Hynek, but again was warned off by one of the men dressed in black. So, Hmm. no fun. So, July 4th weekend, 1975, there was a serial abductee named Kathy Davis. Um, We believe her name was Debbie Tomei. Um, But she was on holiday with her friend Nan and her family in Kentucky's Rough River State Park, and she spoke to a man on CB. He then turned up with two other men in a car, which traveled without mounting on a bumpy road full of potholes. Though she had not asked where they were and did not know how they found them, they were all dressed in blue denim. Um, yeah, so that was a weird way to say that. She did not know how they found them. She did not tell them where she was. They did not tell her where they were. Mm -hmm. They found her. Okay. They were all dressed in blue denim. Um, they first went into the cabin. It was late and the others would have been in bed, but they were up yet just still not moving. Like they were hardly awake, not saying anything. One of the men did all the talking. Bud Hopkins suspected they were aliens or hybrids. So, yeah, just weird. Like, so the men in black were the ones wearing the denim? Yeah, the men in black were wearing the denim. Okay, so now they're men in blue jeans. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are in Kentucky. Okay. They got to blend so they're in. they're trying to blend in. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I don't know if that's more fashionable or not. I kind of like the black suits myself. I know. I'm like, I like this classic black suit with the wide brim hat. I think <laughs> it looks good. Yeah. Hmm. So then in 1976, Shirley Greenfield of Penine Ridges near Bolton, Lincolnshire, was visited by two men in smart black suits, interrogated by one of them, 
named the commander about her UF sighting, UFO sighting in January of that year and her subsequent purple rash. Which, like, did she get a rash? Because it, like, she touched something it touched? Like, yeah, I don't know. A purple rash. Yeah, a purple rash. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a good color, but, like, <laughs> concerning. Um, so then later on in 1976, a small, a couple in a small town in Minnesota where there had been a localized UFO flap since November of 1975, were driving towards the town when the man recalled that he had to go make a phone call. So he pulled up to a booth and a black Cadillac drew up and the man got out and pushed him away to get to the phone first. He drove off to a second phone and the black car appeared again and it was the same individual to get to the phone first. And this happened a third time. They chased the car and took its license plate when it took off into the air and disappeared. Hmm. So they did... There had been UFO encounters. He had to make a phone call. Maybe the person thought that they had seen something they shouldn't have seen and was trying to prevent them from making that phone call. And the car lifted off into the air and then disappeared? The car just, like, flew off. Huh. So So this is the first flying car situation. Yeah, I mean, there have definitely been mentions that the cars drove too smoothly or, like, whatever, but, yeah. Yeah, the last one, or the one before, whatever, sounded like it was, like car was kind of floating over the bumps on the road or something but mm-hmm. yeah this is car took off yeah so now we're in september of 1976 so dr herbert hopkins of orchard beach maine um had kind of hypnotically regressed as a ufo witness at home alone for the first evening in some time he was visited by a man with no hair or even eyelashes who claimed to be from the non-existent New Jersey UFO research organization who made a coin dematerialize. The abdi- What? Made a coin dematerialize. There we go. The UF- The guy who had been abducted said that a man in a black suit came to his trailer home and warned him not to speak of his experiences. Hmm. So again, like the no hair, the bald, like the... That's just weird. Uh, then... Herbert Hopkins's daughter-in-law, Maureen, received a telephone call from a man who claimed to know her husband, John, and his female companion, who were both... Er, okay, sorry. She received a telephone call from a man who claimed to know her husband, John. Then him and his female companion both wore kind of old-fashioned clothes, met John at a restaurant, and back at their home asked them many personal questions. And their behavior exhibited some... some peculiarities. The man kept pawing and fondling the woman, asking John if he was doing it correctly. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... Wow. I don't know what that was. I was going to say, if I was John, I'd be a little, like, uh, I'm uncomfortable with this situation. I don't know what you're trying to do correctly, but... Wow. That's a little... It's a little freaky, for sure. Yes. Um... So then later on that year, um, APRA researcher Dick Rule was, <laughs> sorry, that name, Dick Rule, <laughs> anyway, was getting evidence analyzed from a supposed UFO landing site, and he found himself being followed by a black Mustang with license plate UFO 35. And it was driven by a man dressed totally in black. He also told a paper that he believed that the MIB were also monitoring his UFO lectures. So, interesting. 
You would think they would not have a license plate that had UFO in it. That just seems dumb. Like, Like, they're trying to tell people not to talk about it, and then they're like, but we're going to drive a car that says UFO. Exactly. It just seems dumb. Um, So then in 1977, John Marin of Shepherd's Bush, London, was reading John Keel's Operation Trojan Horse while his father watched television. He remarked incredulously, It says here that people get phone calls from flying saucers. They both laughed at the idea. Two or three minutes later, the telephone on the bedside table rang. He picked it up and the receiver said, hello, or he said hello. Then a strangely metallic voice said, this is the first one. Oh. And rang off. (laughs) (laughs) In about 1990, Marin said that he was still awaiting the second. At least he has some, like, fun about that, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. He's like, well, that was weird, but. Yeah. Never happened again. This is the first one, and then I'm never calling you back. <laughs> I have you on pins and needles. <laughs> I mean, but maybe it's like a scared straight thing. Like, ooh, I'm going to freak you out with this, and then you won't say anything. Um, so then in June of 1977, two men turned up at the Ripperton farm where there had been many UFO sightings. One sat in the flashy metallic colored car while the other inspected the dairy equipment at the back of the farm. Both had pointed chins, high foreheads, and penetrating eyes. Later, they turned up at the Haven Fort Hotel, where the receptionist was puzzled that their car was silent on the gravel track. Hmm. So, again, maybe the car was floating? Yeah. I don't know. Weird. July of 1977, Joseph Randall, founder of the UFOlogy Society International, was driving between Golden and Radium and the the British Columbia. Um where on the way home from work in the Glacier National Park. Wait. Which we going to next year. Oh, yeah, we are. Got to get our glacier on. No, we have a national park plan. We're going to see all of them. Um, and we've gotten a good start. Oh, yeah. Um, but they're going to his mother's place in Invermere, at, or Invermere, something like that. And he encountered... No other traffic other than at the Golden Intersection. At about 10.45 p.m., a pristine early model Cadillac crossed the highway from east to west. He saw three men inside with black coats and hats. It left a cloud behind it. He stopped and realized that there was no intersecting road, so that this seemed to have been impossible. He did not encounter any other traffic until he reached the radium intersection. Hmm. So, that's kind of weird. If there's no road and a car drives in front of you. Yep. That's a little weird. That is a little weird. (laughs) Um, Don't know what to make of that other than that, but um, yeah. So then in 1978. Well, and I just want to add to this one. I have no idea what this is about. (laughs) But I'd like to add the 1978 is a fabulous year where many beautiful, generous, thoughtful people were born. Uh-huh. Who are very giving and kind and wonderful. So 1978 is a really great year. Yeah, Mom, you know. We, we know. <laughs> okay, I'm just letting y'all know. It's a really great year. <laughs> um, but anyway, Rick Moran um, had done a reinvestigation of Mothman and related stories in West Virginia and received lots of odd phone calls. Some of them were threatening, saying that he should drop an interest in UFOs. And then when he turned up to be interviewed for the Joel Martin's talk show at WBAB in Long Island, um, which was to relate the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam, huh. Martin told him that he had been visited by the classic MIB who had cautioned him about doing shows about UFOs. Instead, 
of the intended topic, they decided to go public, um, saying, whenever a journalist feels he is in danger, the best advice is to put everything he knows before the public and the hope that once it's public knowledge, there is no reason to threaten the source. I kind of agree with that. They had no subsequent problems. Yeah. I kind of agree with that. I kind of feel like, you know, they're going to threaten, but once you put it all out there, it's out there, so... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I think that was the smart thing to do, honestly. Um, Crazy, though. So, 1979, uh, in August, uh, following some UFO sightings, Sarah, who was 14 of Toronto, Canada, was unconscious for 15 minutes after the sighting of an arrowhead. Under hypnosis, she not only recalled an abduction, but that a six-foot-tall man in a black suit with slanted eyes and a gray-toned face, long long fingernails, and tapering fingers had followed her into the school courtyard during lunch and questioned her about her friends, who had also seen UFOs. So. After the sighting of an arrowhead. Maybe the shape of the UFO was like an arrowhead or Hmm. something. Okay. Because they say they're like cigar-shaped or this, so maybe it was like an arrowhead shape. Hmm. I don't know. Um, December of 1979, following the Sergi Pontois abduction. Pont- oh, this is French. Hold on. From a suburb of Paris. Sergei Pontois? Pontois? Pontois. Pontois? I don't know. I don't know. If you speak French, write in, friends. <laughs> um, abduction from a suburb of Paris. At about 7 a.m., there was a knock on the door answered by Jean-Pierre Provost. Uh, there were three men. One was of average height, well-dressed in a dark green, almost black suit, um, black tie and white shirt, and a waistcoat to match his suit. He had a fringe of a beard, black like his hair, and a mustache. The others were bigger than him, taller and more heavily built. Asked by the bearded man, are you one of the three? He said yes. Good. In that case, you can pass the word to your companions. You've already said too much. An accident will happen to you. And if you say more, it will be more serious than that. Oh, my gosh. Then they vanished. Well, that was just straight threatening. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, that's not all. Okay. So then he saw them again on several other occasions, but the only time they they spoke was in a tobacco shop. When they threatened him again under hypnosis, Provost denied that the man, as coming from inside Earth, and added that if the bearded man had been real, or no, he added that he believed the bearded man to be real, but that his companions had not been. So maybe shape-shifting, something weird. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Kind of late in the 70s, um, somewhere in Auckland, New Zealand, near Auckland, New Zealand, um, there is a memoir kind of written by... A New Zealand journalist spent living in the countryside with her husband, Pat Booth, and another who was another high-profile journalist, interpolled with discussions of social and political events and personages of the period in which she and her husband were involved in discussions of her belief in the New Age and the phenomena of UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly after kind of moving to this area of Auckland, she learns that the locals regularly see UFOs and sees a couple of them on her own and she interprets the ufos as a symbol of higher consciousness feeling that they exude waves of love 
Um, but she also comes to consider UFOs as the source of a pervasive humming noise that permeates the area at regular intervals and for no for which no identifiable source can be known. Well, that's how they spread the love. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they got to have a way to spread the love. <laughs> I know. That's not even a Men in Black story. That's just, like, kind of weird. But, all right, friend. Um, but I think this kind of goes along with this. But specific, specific dates aren't really given to this. But one day her husband comes home. Uh, commuting from his editorial job and he's looking distressed stating that I think I've been chased by extraterrestrials on the way home Uh, her husband recounts being tailed all the way down the motorway uh, from Auckland by a big black van with black glass in the windows three men in black sitting in the front describing the van and men as eerie and so menacing that I've never felt so terrified in my life however when Booth turns off the motorway the van carries on and does not follow. So then Adams relates that Booth's interpretation of the van as not being driven or as being driven by extraterrestrials is derived by the fact that both had previously read uh, New Zealand pilot Bruce Cathy's books on UFOs, uh, which recount his experiences of being stalked by men in black figures and the conclusion to the book, um, she muses on the metaphysical meanings of her experiences, especially in relation to her life in the community is related to karma accrued in a past life. Hmm. So her evaluation is that the men in black that Patrick and I were involved with was, I feel a reflection of our own negativity at the time. We simply wouldn't have a visit from them now because we just don't hold and accept such negativity in our consciousness. Okay, Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The power of positivity. I mean, listen, we need more people to be positive. Yes, we do. That's why I was born in 1978 (laughs) because it was a great year for positive people. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I'm glad you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, because without me, there is no you. (laughs) Very true. Um, All right, the 80s. We love some 80s. All right, so according to William Moore, APRO directors gave him a letter from Craig Weitzel, an Air Force cadet um, at Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, who had photographed a landed UFO and a silver-suited occupant. Hmm. Back at the base, he was approached by a man in a dark suit and shades who said his name was Huck. Huck, huh? And Huck wanted the UFO pictures, which he handed over. But when Moore interviewed Weitzel, he denied having taken any photographs of the UFO or having a strange visitor. Hmm. So almost like maybe something else happened. So but silver suits now, so they... <laughs> They're a little late to disco, but well, so this, so there was the silver suit was at the UFO, but then he was encountered by a man in a dark suit. Oh, okay. So maybe the silver suit's the space suit. I yeah, but I mean that's a good look. It's very disco. <laughs> oh yeah. They're a couple of years late, but you know it's okay. You know, light. We're on to new wave. We're on to new wave. There's no more disco. I know. All right. So later on in 1980, Charles Affleck. Um, which was one of the members of the Swindon Center for UFO Research, found a note on his door set that said, Cease UFO Study. And in weeks to come, other members received similar messages, um, some in the mail Swindon, with Swindon postmarks, and there were also peculiar threatening phone calls. They were eventually able to prove that the culprit was one of their own members. Really? Yeah. 
that's a little scary. So he was like, I'm just tired of working so hard. So, <laughs> like, if we could take a break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so then, yeah, 1980, Beryl Hollins of Goulburn near Wigan in Lancashire uh, had seen a UFO in August 31st and was telephoned by a supposed scientist from Jodrell Bank who would not say how he obtained her number, but he advised her not to associate with the cranks in ufology. Then, mid-November of 1980, Michael Elliott was doing saucer research in a university library somewhere in the U.S. and was approached by a very thin, dark man in a black suit who asked him about flying saucers and uh, placed his hand on his shoulder and said, Go well in your purpose. After he had left the witness terrified, he noticed that there was no one in the library, not even at the information desk. He forced himself to sit down again. When he left an hour later, there were two librarians between each of the two desks. So maybe the guy had, like, cleared out the library. But again, this is where I think, like, sometimes, like, aliens are, like, grooming humans for, like... But it was go well in your purpose? Go well in your purpose. So that means they must have liked what he was finding, doing, whatever... But, like, maybe he wasn't stumbling on anything important. Like, maybe they were like, eh, you're failing anyway. Yeah. Have fun. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Just, like, a little weird. Yeah. Um, So then, August of 1981, David Ellis and his wife Caroline, which could be pseudonyms, ran the Horseshoes Public House outside of Matlock, Derbyshire, and had several recent UFO sightings. Um, And they were visited at several several seven in the morning by two men with black and black with gray suede gloves Ooh. like twins they were revealed to be hairless when they took off their hats and apparently wore lipstick oh. they wore them, they warned the couple to say nothing made caroline's signet ring disappear and drove off in a black mercedes which had no license plate the ring soon reappeared Afterwards, they received several telephone calls from a somewhat metallic voice warning them not to talk. Hmm. So, again, maybe they're up in the ante in the black because it's the 80s. I don't really know. And they got the lipstick going. <laughs> I'm surprised know. they didn't have any guy liner because that was definitely starting to be more of a thing in the 80s. But oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good look. <laughs> I don't know what shade they had. I like to think of, like, a blood red. I was going to say, I feel like it's got to be some kind of red, like, burgundy or something beautiful. But, mm-hmm. yeah, and the gray gloves. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> wonder if they were, like, isotoners. <laughs> I mean, it was the 80s, you know? Yeah, who knows? Who okay. knows? All right. Later on that year, um, Grant Breland and N.B. of Vancouver had sighted a UFO from vantage points about three miles apart. Um, Breland had taken a photograph, and they were both visited by two strange men who intimidated them sufficiently that Breland never released the picture, and MB would not cooperate with investigators. Hmm. Um, Breland kind of gave a little bit more of a story in another account, and he said that the two men lacked fingernails at the Kmart store, and they asked him, what is your name? The other asked where he lived, and then, what is your number? Their lips did not move when they spoke. Ooh. And when they left, he followed them, and they walked across a muddy field and then vanished. No other people were in sight during the incident, and though after the men vanished, the place was populated again. 
So they're talented ventriloquists. <laughs> yeah, basically, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they can they can do some magic with their with their mouths there. <laughs> um, so towards the end of 1980, um, the night after UFOs had been seen near a U.S. Air Force base in Rundlesham, R- Rundlesham, Suffolk. One of the witnesses, Lady Warren, received a telephone call warning him, Lady, oh my God, Larry Warren, sorry (laughs) friends, Uh, I apparently can't read uh, today, Um, but they were ordering him to be in the parking lot in 20 minutes or else. Hmm. There were two men in dark suits, and they motioned to him to get into a dark blue sedan where an eerie green, green, green glow, my goodness, suddenly filled the vehicle. He lapsed into semi-consciousness. They took him to a secret underground facility beneath the base of which he had been unaware. He later found himself wandering around the base in a daze and had discovered that two days had passed. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, I would really not like that. The time lapses freak me out. Yeah. Like when people are like, I was gone a week. It's like, what it's were like, you doing yeah, for a week? What were they doing to me during that time? Right. And then like, I mean... Hypnosis is a whole thing, but, like, can you imagine, like, being hypnotized and, like, finding something out that, like, happened? Oh, terrifying. Mm -hmm. I hate it. Uh, So, sometime in the early 80s, not a true kind of time, but private investigators of UFO sightings in the Hudson Valley were contacted by James Madison, apparently of the NSA, who wanted to obtain videotape footage shot by a witness. He said he wanted to forward the tape to Bruce McAbee. The latter told Hynek and Imbrogo that he knew um, that Madison was with the NSA. When they refused to turn over the tape, Madison told Imbrogo, You know, Phil, the government has done away with people for a lot less. Huh. But this time saying the government. So that, but, and they, they proved that this person was in the NSA. Huh. So the government's done something. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I don't want to get done away with. So they're in the know, you know? They're in the know, you know? Hmm. You know, you know? You know, you know. Um, So Valentine's Day of 1983. uh, Hope other people had a good time. These people might not have. Uh, (laughs) Colin and Lynn Reagan of Swathburn, Buckinghamshire, had recently seen a glowing UFO several times. They were visited by two men calling themselves Frederick Grattan and George Edwards, who said they were from the Ministry of Defense and had advised them not to talk about it for reasons of national security. On February 19th, Colin had experienced missing time. They visited him again and put him into a hypnotic trance under which he recalled that he had been taken aboard a spaceship and made to have sex with an attractive female alien. Hmm. Again, why do aliens have to be bad, you know? Why are they trying to procreate? Yeah. Stresses me out. (laughs) Um, All right. April of 1984. Gwen Freeman of Scotland. Um, I'm going to try this name. I'm sorry to anyone Scottish. I'm going to say Blair Gowry. Blair Gowry? What? I think that sounds good enough. (laughs) Blair Gowry saw a group of strangers in black Yiddish attire walk in single file up the path of a neighbor's house and enter. Not long after, they left again, but when she and her son called on the woman, she denied having received any visitors. Hmm. Later that day, Mrs. Freeman saw a UFO. A week or so after, a man and a woman in dark old-fashioned clothes called on to her and told her that she must not seek of what she had seen, otherwise 
a great evil would befall her. Ooh. A great evil. A great evil. That just, yeah, that does not sound pleasant. Mm-mm. Makes me just, like, squirm in my chair. Um, so then in 1984, Mary um, of the U.S. Eastern Seaboard posted a sighting to Jules Vilencourt of MUFON. He never received it, but a man in a brown suit driving a gray Mercedes turned up with her form, claimed to be Valencourt, and asked her questions about the details. So someone intercepted whatever her letter was about her encounter, and it was not him. Okay. So that's sketchy. Um, in December of 84, CB was leaving her office in New York City at 11 p.m. after working overtime, and she saw three globes of light that floated around her. On the way home, she stopped at a deli to get cigarettes, and there was a new counterman of curious appearance his skin was very pale with a yellowish cash, yellowest cat, yellowish cast. There you go. And he had large slanted eyes. He said it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it can be scary. There was no one else in the deli. When she returned the next day and asked about the new counterman, one of the employees she was familiar with told her that there was no new employee. He also said that he had manned the counter the previous night and that she hadn't come into the store. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> so. I don't know, but that's freaky. Uh-huh. For sure. Um, then, 1985, Dan Selden of Cleveland woke up in bed to see three people dressed in black in his room. Huh. <laughs> the experience was totally realistic and yet dreamlike at the same time. One was a woman with dark eyes and black hair, of whom he recalled uh, that she looks evil, but she looks pretty too. She then had intercourse with him. Okay. Don't like that. No. <laughs> uh, 1986, uh, in January, Paul Rebeck of Epping, South Wales, received a visit from a man who said, Hello, sir. I am a representative of the Uranus Peanut Company. Would you like to sample my wares? This <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a joke. <laughs> I want to... I don't think this one is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we just needed a laugh half uh, part of the way through, you know? I don't yeah. know. Um, <laughs> he then brought some peanuts with him and was told, thank you. The council will remember you favorably. Good night. He turned, but then seemed to vanish after a few steps. Rebecca thought it must have been a spectral man in black. Hmm. I mean, the vanishing thing is weird for sure. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, I'm trying to take it seriously, but that all just sounded like it was about to be a joke. I feel like there are people in our lives that would make that joke, (laughs) you know? Like, I just, I feel like I know some pranksters. That sounds like a prankster to me. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I don't know. All right, 1986, UFO witness Michael Lane of Bradford uh, was on a paper route while delivering the Bradford Star and was walking down Sticker Lane when suddenly everything went quiet. There were no people about, nor cars either. Then, a large black shiny car like a Cadillac drew up the roadside to the left from me, um, behind where I was walking, and stopped. A man in black shouted, forget everything you know about UFOs. He saw it was a left-hand drive car, which, when you're in England, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. 
Um, after the car, the car, the car <laughs> drove noiselessly away when it was about 150 yards distance, all normal background noise, people, traffic, etc., returned. Um, and he said, I also felt a tingling sensation all over like pins and needles. Hmm. So. Okay. Yeah. It's a little weird. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, not to be confused with the movie star, but Bruce Lee, an editor at the New York Publishers Morrow. But we love Bruce Lee. Oh, we do. Like, enter the dragon. <laughs> yes, we do. We love Bruce Lee and his sound effects. Um, <laughs> but it is not this Bruce Lee. I okay. apologize. Um, was walking along Lexington Avenue with his wife on a Saturday, and they went into a bookshop to see if the, or how the books he had edited were displayed. Then a short couple, bundled up against the cold so that even their faces could hardly be seen, picked up the copies of Stryber's abduction nar- narrative, Communion, which was a title that he had edited, flicked through them and possibly fast, saying things like, oh, he's got this wrong, oh, he's got that wrong. Their accents were Upper East Side Jewish. Lee went up and asked what errors there might be in the book. The woman glared at him. And through her sunglasses, he could see enormous dark eyes, which reminded him of those of a rabid dog. He hastily left his wife and they went, left with his wife, and they went off to a bar and soaked his shock in margaritas. (laughs) I mean, same. (laughs) Um... But he concluded that they had been aliens who had presumably learned to speak English from Upper East Side Jews. Hmm. I mean, who knows? I mean, the big eyes is weird. Mm-hmm. For sure. And if they were reading so fast that, like, it was, like, abnormally fast, that's also yeah. weird. Well, and if they were, like, correcting it. Yeah. Like, oh, this is true. This isn't true. <laughs> yeah. That just seems a little weird. Whatever it is. Either way. Um, so 1987, uh, abductee, abductee Krista Tilton of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was out near Sedona, Arizona, where she was confronted with an old-fashioned black limo, so shiny I could see my reflection in it. One of two men inside said, time is all wrong. As they drove off, she tried to take a photograph, but nothing happened when she pressed the shutter. Hmm. So, a little weird if they can control technology. Mm-hmm. 1988. Peter Spencer had photographed a green alien on likely Ilky? It might be Ilky. Ilky Moore. Um, And then visited by Jefferson and Davies, purportedly from the Ministry of Defense who could not have known of the case, who asked him how his electric firework requested the negative to which he had lent to Peter Hoff. When When he told them this, they left. So, people wanting the picture that yeah. he had taken, but he didn't have it. But at least they didn't threaten him, I guess. Uh-huh. So then, later on in 88, a Mexican woman named Maria was married to an Englishman from Ch- Cheltenham. And he told told me that there were extraterrestrials living in Cheltenham. She knew about them because they had communicated with her via telepathy. And then one day she saw two of them walking down the street. They had no hair. They wore hats to hide the lack of it on their heads, but she could see nevertheless that they had no eyebrows. I think she said they wore black coats. They nodded to her as they went past. It is interesting. Very bald. Lots of bald ones. Yeah. Um, Later on in 88, there was a work party from the Universal Education Foundation cleaning up the King Ranch in San San Luis Valley in Colorado. 
again, lots of Colorado cases, mm -hmm. uh, to which they had just purchased from Burl Lewis and found some loose leaf pages about UFO sightings by Nellie Lewis, whose horse lady misnamed Snippy. Oh my gosh, Em and Christine did this case. Okay. Had supposedly been killed by a flying saucer in 1967. Mm -hmm. A few minutes later, the men at the work party that I didn't know left. They had taken the pages with them. No one else in the work party knew them either. Hmm. So they were kind of incognito there. Yeah. Um, later on in 88, Margaret Harris and Margaret Wilson of Chandler's Fort Hampshire brought a bright yellow or saw a bright yellow light driving home from Christchurch. Wilson took several photographs and back home telephoned the police. She was not surprised when a man claiming to be a reporter called at her house and asked if he could take the film away to be developed. The story did appear in the Southampton papers, but neither the man nor the film were seen again. Don't give people your film. Yeah. It's not that hard, babes. <laughs> like, just be like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and then we'll see what they do to get it. I know, but fuck politeness. Cool. All right. Later on in the, eight, in the 80s, actually, this is the last 80s story, Frank Patmore of Iverson College in Somerset had suffered bizarre electrical problems in his home, requiring him to replace more than 20 light bulbs a week. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and was visited by unaccountable numbers of well-wishers, experts, spiritualists, dowsers, exorcists, ghost hunters, psychic readers, and men in dark suits who arrived unannounced delved into briefcases to produce maps and other documents, but could not be traced on the contact telephone numbers, which they left. So, that is a little weird. Do we know why they were interested in him? It was because he had all those electrical problems and stuff, so maybe they, maybe it was like a poltergeist or something, and they, but they knew something. Okay. Maybe. is kind of the vibe I'm getting from that. Um, 1990, McClary, a farmer in Tipperary County, Ireland, found two crop circles in his oat fields. <laughs> oat fields. Um, and then two more appeared later. The morning that the last appeared, the thin man, a thin man dressed completely in black, stepped out from behind a shed as he said something. He said something. No. He had something dead about him, and the clothes looked 50 years old. He asked about the circles. A little weird. Why yeah. are you coming out from behind my shed? <laughs> yeah. What you doing back there? Where'd you come from? <laughs> Could be a ghost. Who knows? Um, later on in the 90s, the New England ufologists Philip Imbrogno and Marion Horrigan found some of their post was going astray since witnesses could write saying why they had not responded to a previous letter and when this had not been received. Um, and Brogno then had a phone call from a man that identified himself as Major Andrews, the Air Force representative to the FAA, who wanted to know how many reports they had received in the New York area. He said that the Air Force was concerned about the increase of sightings in the area since they did not want a UFO scare on their hands. He said that the Air Force was investigating the sightings and asked Imbrogno if he would cooperate in the exchange of information. He agreed, and a few weeks later received a packet of reports from the Air Force. Um, they did not contain earth-shattering information, so a little weird that the letters were intervened with. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is weird. That is super weird. Alrighty. So then, um, after that, we had, in 1991, David Huggins gave a presentation at a UFO conference on his abduction experiences. And the following day, 
An unknown man drove three times around his block, stopping each time in front of his house. Hmm. So just like some like kind of intimidation stuff. Then there's Bud Hopkins, who received the first series of, or the first of a series of letters from Richard and Dan, who claimed to have witnessed an abduction of Linda Cortill in 1989. They initially said they were police officers, but later said they were security guards with the UN. Hmm. So just a little weird that they're asking for details. Um, in 1991, Linda Cortille told Hopkins that Richard and Dan had abducted her in a black Mercedes and drove around questioning her for three hours. Oh, wow. So, again, if she was abducted and now she's being abducted by these guys, or abducted by aliens and then having <laughs> another abduction experience with these guys, that's not great. Yeah. Um, later on in 1991, there was a helicopter which hovered above the yard of an abductee named David Huggins in Wellington, New Jersey. Um, and then there was a pilot snapping photos. So, not great. Linda Cortile again told Hopkins that she had been abducted, and this time by Dan in a red Jaguar sports car. Oh, nice. I mean, listen, they're upgrading. <laughs> um, and he had taken her to a beach house on Long Island. So still, sketchy. I mean, but if you had to be abducted and taken somewhere, like, you know, beach house wouldn't be a bad place. Beach house isn't terrible, but not <laughs> yeah. great Not by either. force. <laughs> yeah, like, take me to a beach house, but... But at least it's not like some shack in the woods. <laughs> that would be much scarier. <laughs> I guess, Mom. <laughs> I guess. Um... Then in 1993, there's a Lincolnshire adoptee named Linda Bond, and she walked her dog, and a limousine with black windows stopped her. There were three men inside with black suits, so who knows? They just kind of questioned her, I guess. Nothing okay. too crazy, but yeah. 1996, Michael Drew Hartley was a freelance television producer from Bright House, West Yorkshire, and he planned to make a program about the legend of a monument at nearby Kirkley's Marks, which, or a monument which marks the grave of Robin Hood, basically. Oh. And as helpers, he recruited for this project. He had two media students, a young woman, um, and then that was pretty much it. Uh, so two college students, a young woman from the library, and then, quite suddenly, all three of them pulled out. And when he questioned them, they both said that someone had visited them late at night huh. and told them to have nothing to do with the Robin Hood film or it would affect their future careers and could have even more serious consequences. The librarian sent a fax saying that she was busy with other commitments, but he never learned her exact reasons as she never spoke to him again. Hartley himself received a telephone call from an Oxbridge from a man with an Oxbridge accent who claimed to be from MI6. Though not threatening, Drew was puzzled at how the caller seemed to know a lot about him and the film was never finished. Hmm. So, a little, just weird. But like a, a, like a story about the monument where Robin Hood is supposedly buried. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, because to me, I don't think of that as being a... Um alien men in black kind of a thing so there must be something about that that I don't know Stonehenge no that was Merlin what was Stonehenge I don't know but yeah that's very strange it's just weird yeah so then in 1996 a Southern California cover band took a break from a late night jam session for a smoke and they all blacked out 
What were they smoking? Well, <laughs> they don't say. Oh, okay, well, I mean, I'm just saying. But <laughs> they awoke 10 minutes later, and the lead singer had vanished. Hmm. He reappeared two days later with some scars. Hmm. And then in the third week of February, so this was in January. Then in the third week of February, he was sitting on the porch when a black Cadillac pulled up and three very pale, very bald men in black suits got out. At first glance, they kind of looked, quote, oriental. But at a closer look, let me know they were not that at all. They said that they were with the FBI, and he said to accompany them to their office to answer some more questions. He hesitantly got in the car, which, though a 1978 model, smelled brand new. They drove him around for a half an hour and warned him not to continue to talk about his alien abduction and showed him a series of grisly pictures of mutilated bodies, which they said would happen to him or other people who do not comply. They also showed them video footage of them killing people. Oh, my gosh. So this is <laughs> this <laughs> and, is like way different than the other stories. Oh, yeah. And when he was returned, his friends took down the license plate, but the police told him no such plate was registered or in California or with the FBI. Yeah, that sounds like way more mafia. <laughs> then the story was put on a bulletin board anonymously out of fear. I mean, it does sound very mafia-ish, right? Like, you think about, like, you know, you got, like, Jimmy Hoffa and those guys, Mm -hmm. and they're like, bam, bam, bam. But, I mean, at the same time, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like in White Men Can't Jump. That's totally what I was thinking about. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Oh, my God. Yes, when Woody Harrelson poses for those pictures so that people, so they can say that they killed him and, like, look what you're going to, we're going to do to you if you don't pay us. And he was just posing. But, yeah, that's totally what I thought of. Absolutely. But, yeah, this is definitely sounding like they're getting way more, like, directly threatening. Like, here's a video of us killing people, and here's pictures mm-hmm. of people we have killed. That's very much more threatening than I some of the other things. I also want to know what cover band. Yeah, I was wondering that, too. Because, like, I mean, I'm not going to say anything, but, like, Taylor Hawkins was in a cover band in SoCal. Like, who knows? Like, it could have been someone. In, in the 90s? Like, this could have been someone big. Yeah. I don't know. Just weird. Or like me personally giving me a maze. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But I still want to know what they were smoking because, you know, you never know. I mean, it's California, Mom. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'm going to black out for 10 minutes. Like, I don't know. It's very specific, I guess, time-wise, though. Um, okay. So then in 1996, Jim Keith interviewed Huggins on the telephone. And immediately following the conversation, Huggins' phone rang again, but there was silence on the other end. So, I think he thinks, whatever. Then, when Keith decided to interview John Keel, Keith's phone afterwards rang, but there was silence on the line, and he also received a breather call. Ew. Scary. Mm-hmm. All right, 1998. Woo-woo. Woo-woo. There is Woo-woo. another fabulous person that was born this year. Is <laughs> <laughs> also generous of spirit and very intelligent. <laughs> Beautiful, talented, all the good things. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But Jerry Anderson of UFO Monitors East Kent uh, was investigating the Burmarsh UFO incident of March 1997, and he received a letter signed by Wing Commander A.W. Ward of the RAF, or the Royal Air Force. It read as if it were written by someone else whose first language was not English, and it ordered him to cease his investigations. He later discovered this 
officer really existed, but when he wrote to him, to re- he received a reply, this time in fluent English, denying that he had written the letter. Hmm. He was visited by people supposedly from the TV licensing authorities who demanded to see his license, and they went away when he showed it. But this was extremely odd, since TV licensing men only visit homes that do not have licenses. On February 1999, he received a tape cassette in the mail, which proved to be a recording of a conversation he had had with another researcher. So, again, not complete perfect evidence, but it is interesting. Mm -hmm. So then in 2000, Colin Perks had been trying to locate the grave of King Arthur and was visited by Miss Sarah Key, the most beautiful woman he had ever met, who wore an expensive-looking black suit. She told him many intimate details of his research, which he thought was impossible for an outsider to know. She said that she represented the interests of a number of people within the British government and the ruling establishment who had been looking at occult matters since World War II. He knew that what he was doing was dangerous. If he did not cease, you will receive another visitor. He ignored this and pressed on with his research, but he did get another visitor. Not this time a government official, but a gargoyle. A seven a foot gargoyle. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. We're talking men in black, and now suddenly Quasimodo's friends are showing up. Uh huh. Okay. A seven foot tall entity with leather wings, glowing red eyes, and fangs, which terrified him. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe the men in black made friends with Mothman. <laughs> I mean, we think Mothman could be an alien. Like, it makes sense. Okay, but a gargoyle, huh? Okay, that's a very different kind of story than what we've talked about so far tonight. Yeah, this one seems a little off. Maybe he did some LSD or something. I don't know. Um, Not important. In 2003, um, the Ministry of Defense's UFO desk received a call from a woman who said that in the small hours, she and her mother had seen lights in the sky from their home in East Dulwich, South London, and feared this might be a terrorist attack. So she called the Peckham police, who eventually sent a car around. In it were two policemen and two men in spacesuits with dark glasses who called themselves Mork and Mindy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> this one's made up for sure. I know. These men told her not to look at the object because of possible radiation, and they carried a transmitter, Geiger counter, question mark, which kept clicking, which is important for radiation. You got to know that. As the woman's eyes hurt from watching the light, she offered to wash them out in a solution, and she declined. She was then told not to talk to anyone about this, certainly not the press, in case it caused a panic. Okay, that one for sure is I'm not done. (laughs) Okay. After they asked the woman for their birth signs, they left. The Ministry of Defense contacted the police. Naturally, they denied Mork and Mindy's story, saying that they had only sent two officers without any radiation equipment and that the woman, that the lights were aliens, not terrorists, and that they themselves had been unable to see them. Later, the mother wrote a letter of complaint saying that they had discovered that Mork and Mindy was a television sitcom about an alien and that they had been trying to make us look foolish. So, <laughs> well, you did look foolish. You did look foolish, and I mean, and I mean, come on! If you are a Robin Williams fan at all, you should know Mark and Mindy. But this is in England. Uh, but they are very well. I don't know if they were back then, but they're very involved in like American. 
pop culture stuff. Yeah, but the amount of things that like are British pop culture that we have no idea about, and then That's like true. they come to the U.S. and we're like, this new comedian, and they're like, they've been here twenty years. Where oh, have okay. you been? You know, like yeah. I could kind of see there's maybe a disconnect in terms of media that way, but okay. But they think so instead of somebody just like fucking with them and like <laughs> saying, hey, we're Mark and Mindy. You know, and making, you know, but they, she thinks that it was aliens trying to make her look stupid. So there were the two cops, and then there were Mark and Mindy. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark and Mindy. Apparently. I got that. But she thinks they were actual aliens that just use the name Mark and Mindy and not she just. She thinks they were men in black connected to the lights. Yeah. Okay. But I they think. were trying to make her look dumb so that, like, to discount whatever story she was telling. Because she didn't know about Mark and Mindy. Huh. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but we have definitely gone a lot longer than I expected. Um, there were a lot of interesting stories, a lot of crazy vibes. Mom, is there any sort of opinion you have? Like, do you think any of these stories could hold some weight? And Like, do you think they're more government or more alien or more... Like, do you have any opinions about any of this? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the stories were so varied. So it's like, yeah, some of them sounded mobbed up some of it sounded like government cover-up and some of it sound I mean when you talk about the long fingers and you know those kind of things that definitely doesn't sound human mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. well and the, the way they talk and all of that that stuff doesn't sound human so yeah I feel like it depends on the story what I think the vibe is right yeah I feel like for me the stuff that I guess is more convincing which is maybe just me believing that like some of these like famous guys like John Keel and stuff are more like knowledgeable Mm -hmm. but like when you know John Keel didn't have a secretary and someone was following around or like John Keel had a doppelganger that showed up or yeah that to me like that feels weird so whatever that is even if it was just someone trying to you know intimidate someone or whatever like Mm -hmm. whether that's men in black government whatever it is interesting um, for sure. But, yeah, some of them sound a bit more, like, alien creature like mm-hmm. and some of them sound just, like, pranksters, mm-hmm. like Mark and Mindy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like somebody's just fucking with her, but... <laughs> um, yeah, that... <laughs> but if you've never seen Mark and Mindy, it's very stupid and fabulous, so... You should totally check that out. <laughs> oh, I love that show. Anytime it's on, like, late-night TV, I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, let's watch it. <laughs> Um, a very young and fabulous Robin Williams. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was like kind of all over. I mean, cause it was all over in terms of like yeah. where these sightings were. It was all over in terms of what they look like or how they showed up. And Well, and it's and interesting, th- I feel like in the sixties season, especially around the Mothman time, the amount of like Ohio, West Virginia, like Illinois, like those Maryland, like there were a lot of stories kind of in the same few places. But, but yeah. you take that to mean that there was like alien activity there at the time. So then there was a lot of sightings of the men in black because there was so much activity at the time. Yeah, that's kind of how I see it. Because hmm. at that time, I mean, aside from Mothman, they had reported that in like Ohio and West Virginia, there were more UFO sightings. So I do think it makes sense. There were a lot of men in black sightings. But yeah, the one that always freaks me out is that guy who, like, sees the girl and just, like, runs away. (laughs) Or there was, I think, it might have been the same MIB, but I think I had heard a story around, like, Point Pleasant where, like, 
the Mothman, like, came in and was talking to, like, a store clerk, and he, like, saw a ballpoint, like, a clicker pen, and he, like, thought it was, like, the coolest thing ever. He was like, whoa. <laughs> like, the Mothman did? No, like, the, oh. the, the men in black person. Like, oh, okay. He, but he was, like, reported as, like, the same, like, kind of short, like, goofy, like, guy that, like, the other chick had seen. And then he, like, was so obsessed with this pen, and then he, like, ran out of the store like he was, like, stealing it or something. And was like... <laughs> so even stuff like that where they're like wowed by things that are like mundane here you know so yeah but see that seems weird too because if it seems like they're more advanced than us you would or they've been watching us or studying us or something like that you would think those things would be things that they've seen before or i don't know though right because like you even think about like going to other countries and there are just things you don't think about like you're like oh of course i'll be able to get cheetos and Russia. They don't have Cheetos in Russia, you know? Like, they have whatever. They have. <laughs> I know, but I feel like that's a little different. <laughs> okay, that's a little different. But, like, I feel like when you travel, sometimes you see things and you're like, whoa, this is just, like, normal for you? Yeah. What? So maybe as an alien, like, who's never done these things, like, hmm. who knows? Yeah, but <laughs> I just go back to, like, if they know how to drive a car, like, <laughs> the idea that they're fascinated by a pen seems a little silly. I think it's cute, though. Okay. <laughs> it's cute, but silly. Um, well, anyway, friends, thanks for checking into our first keg. I know this was a lot and a doozy, and I hope that the stories made sense and all of the things. But, um, yeah, we'll uh, see you next month with our... Halloween spooktober keg. Oh, yeah. We have some things planned for next month, so keep an eye out. And, uh, yeah, I think until then, we're just going to say we appreciate you. Keep listening, liking, subscribing on Patreon and Instagram and doing the things. Email us if you have your own theories or MIB encounters, and uh, we'll let you know if we have any encounters. Hopefully <laughs> not. I know. I was going to say, after this, i got to, like, make sure my my room is clear of Men in Black. I know, right? I'm like, oh my god, I have to like sleep and do things now. Yep. All right. Well, I appreciate you, and I appreciate you. All right. Good night, y'all. Bye, friends.